and talking to our friends. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Hellboy Book Club. My name is John Salinas, and I'm here with... Aubrey Loveless. And I'm Danielle. And I'm Matt Strachbein. Hey, how's it going, Matt? Doing well. How are you guys? Doing good. Uh, good. Stressful week. Moved to a new place. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that does sound stressful. Yeah. Do you want a beer? Do you want a no, Friday beer? I'm actually kind of just tired. <laughs> and if I drink a beer, I might fall asleep on the way home. Right. <laughs> I want to start off the episode saying congrats to Mike Mignola. He's going to be inducted into the Comic Book Hall of Fame. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, that is really cool. That's so amazing. They're inducting him. And also, Mark Tweedell reminded me the late John Severin mm. is also going to be yeah. inducted. Oh, that's awesome. Great. Yeah, nice. so that's really cool. We've covered John Severin's work in BPRD War on Frogs and Witchfinder Lost and Gone Forever and a little bit of Sledgehammer 44 because he had that one page at the end, so... Cheers to John Severin. I also want to tease going over to Mike Mignola's art on Facebook. You know, Craig McKnight, our good pal over there. and Book club member. Thank you, Aubrey. Craig, he... Craig, who he did the awesome raffle last year, and remember we had amongst the prizes sketches by Mignola, Lawrence Campbell, all these great artists, and so he's cooking something up again for this year. And so if you want to be in on whatever thing that is going to be happening, which um, you definitely don't want to miss out on this one. So you want to head over to Facebook. A lot of people don't want to make a Facebook account. Myself included. <laughs> but just <laughs> understandable. Though. But just make a just get a dummy email address or whatever. What Whatever you can do. Get over to Mike Mignola's art on Facebook. Oh, and like start, a trash email. Yeah, oh, there you go. Six of those. Yeah. And uh, yeah, just get over there and follow that page because there's going to be some really good stuff coming down the pipe. You do not want to miss it. I also want to thank at Flapjack's Jockey on Twitter. Flapjack's Jockey. Yeah, for nudging me to update the reading order. So yeah, it was like all messed up. Like oh. we had we had put Lobster Johnson the Burning Hand in there and all this other stuff and I hadn't updated anything. So yeah, I went in and fixed all that. Oh, and <laughs> Yeah. Where, where can people look at that? So yeah, if you go over to our Facebook page and you go to the About section, you can check that out. Also, just a disclaimer, we may change things down the road as needed, so it's not set in stone. All right, and now we're going to go on to our listener feedback section. So get out your trades and floppies. Get out your hardback copies. Digital print is fine. You can read along in time. We had a Hey You Damn Guys from Gabriel Meza. Hey You Damn Guys. He said, greetings again from your pal Gabe from Honduras. It's been a while since I wrote you guys, and Gal just wanted to come in and tell you to keep up the great work. And now on to my Professor O'Donnell rant. Yes. The Ape Sapien stories are wild, both figuratively and literally. There are a couple things I wanted to tell you guys. I remember that quite a few episodes ago you talked about the idea of an Ape series taking place during the time of his coma... And the dreams he was having. So my title for that series would be Abe Sapien Dreams of Fish. I just wanted to put that one out there. Yeah, so somebody should definitely make right that. On. Okay, guys, uh, in the Mignola verse out there, I know you're listening. Get on it. <laughs> <laughs> and he also wanted to point out, I thought this was really cool. There's a particular graffiti in the Abe Sapien Sacred Places story. It's on page uh, 324 in the physical omnibus, page 322 in the digital omnibus. So in the background, when Abe is fighting those wolves, remember those wolves and one of them's got like three miles or something like that? 
there's a graffiti in the background and it's this guy in a metal diving suit and gabriel says the man in the diving suit looked very familiar to me so i started researching and remember this argentinian comic the eternaut or the internauta is an argentinian comic book written by hector german osterheld and illustrated by francisco lopez it was published between 1957 and 1959 and the publisher was Harold I found this Easter egg especially important because the comic book depicts a post-apocalyptic world not that dissimilar to the one that we've seen in this story. This is one of the most important comics in history that next to no one talks about. It's very politically charged, and what's more interesting is it takes place in the contextual history of Argentina at the time. One of the central themes of the Internaut is individualism, which I feel is a theme of the Abe series to some degree. It's about a fishman walking around, thinking about his place in the world, and finding some monsters along the way. I would highly recommend you watch this video if you want to learn more. And he posted this video. You can check it out on YouTube. It's called The Internaut, an Argentinian cultural watershed comic book. That sounds interesting. Yeah, and so it was really cool. Um, I was checking that out. It's definitely worth checking out. And it does look like it has some parallels. Right. So maybe the Fumaras read this, you know, read this comic or they were familiar with it. Wait, um, where are the Fumaras? Aren't they from Argentina? Yeah, are they? I or, think that's right. Yeah, so I think that was really cool. He said, keep up the amazing work, and it cannot be overstated. Fuck the Black Flame. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Yeah, so thanks a lot. Good to hear from you, Gabriel. We had some more feedback on our The Garden and Others stories regarding the Duke Sports Bar and Grill t-shirt that Ryan Yule bought. Mark Tweedell said, see, this is the kind of shirt I like. The one that only other fans would get. I'd love Mike Mignola to do a series of shirts with symbols on them. A black shirt with the lobster's claw on it in blue or orange or a green shirt with the Abe logo. Hell, I'd even like a graffiti Phoenix was right shirt. (laughs) Yeah, I would like one of those. That'd be kind of neat. Yeah, that would be cool. Uh, Those guys are from Argentina, by the way. Okay, awesome. I was looking that up too. (laughs) Thanks for looking that up, Matt. Regarding the garden... Mark said, The Garden is an intense story, and yet it was one that really unlocked the dark and terrible cycle for me. It made me focus on the visual storytelling much more than the dialogue, and I found once that happened, I could read what was going on in the series much more. Before they began work on the dark and terrible cycle, Scott Alley discussed the overall arc for the cycle with the Fumaras and Dave Stewart. This gave the Fumaras a chance to backwards engine sequences for the series. They could pitch sequences to Scott Alley. And then he could incorporate those sequences later. And for Dave Stewart, it means he could craft the color arc over the course of 31 issues. In the garden, there are visuals that are so damn important. Multiple storylines evolving in a nonlinear manner. Max Fumara and Dave Stewart are being really careful about how they orient the reader. In terms of the colors, Stewart isn't just saying this color means this scene. He's also evolving the scene's palette as it progresses. Each scene has its own color arc. I think the way Grace's trauma is portrayed is especially effective, mainly because the way it's portrayed isn't external. The scene when her daughter dies makes me cry every time. Max Fumara did this incredible thing where he chose to show their hands, not their faces. We aren't outsiders looking at Grace's pain on her face. Instead, we're inside her experience, looking at the hands the way we would if we were experiencing it directly. That is something that blows me away every time I look at Max's art. His hand acting is incredible. He gets more emotions out of hands than some artists can get out of faces. The Garden is a tough read, but it's told with such care. 
Yeah. It's and a really the, interesting perspective because that's what you're looking at the most probably is your own hands. Yeah. Well, it makes me think of that scene where Abe and Grace are holding hands. Yeah. And if it, it focuses in on they're having this conversation at the and then at the end of it, they're holding hands. Even the phrase, I know it like the back of my own hand. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Very interesting. And Ross Radke said, responding to Mark's comments, allegory can help us find truth and meaning in our efforts to cope with reality, but reality can't be expected to conform to the simplistic morality of a parable i had a very conservative religious upbringing but i think it was different than most in that i was always encouraged to question what i was taught and study answers for myself i think my grandpa who was a preacher was so sure in his religion that when i started coming to different conclusions using techniques he taught he didn't really know what to make of it so while we shared much of the same faith, we have diverged in our practice of religion. I've never really looked at it this way before. I've seen organized religion save some and hurt others. I've seen faith open eyes and blind others. I've known people overcome crippling anxiety and depression through the community of a strong church family, not just within the congregation, but also through community service. But there's also the us versus them mentality that can creep in and poison all this. It's why religious folks turn a blind eye to the abuses within their own body of believers while condemning others for reasons that don't make sense to those outside their group. Mental disabilities, religion, trauma, and abuse are tricky enough subjects on their own. Tackling all at once in a comic starring a fish man should be a terrible idea. It's a testament to the craft and artistry of the creators that it works as a compelling piece of storytelling. That's true. It does take yeah. some very complex... Yeah ideas and um explore them yeah and he also said he also said i'm really tired right now so i'm rambling no it's good and it's you bring up i mean it's for being tired as well articulated i will just say one thing and it's not supposed to be a rebuttal it's just my thoughts on what you're talking about if i can extend that topic a little further is i do agree that that can happen but you can get a sense of community from and a sense of um, relief through secular means as well. So it doesn't necessarily anyway. But that's that's just me. And I respect your opinion and your life experience and what you've been through and what you've personally witnessed. And so I'm not, you know, trying to say that you didn't experience that. I just, hey, what kind of podcast is this anyway? Sorry. <laughs> Nathaniel Green said, Diana is awesome. And so he posted this picture of his like of his bookshelf with all his Hellboy stuff, and he's got a Santa Muerte candle. Oh wow! Oh yeah, with it. I it saw was that. Really cool. Yeah, it looks good with all his Mignolaverse books. Right on. We should um, we should get him on the podcast one day. Yeah, <laughs> that would be great. I'd love to have Nathaniel on. Jason Abaddon said, "Diana has some real power, or channels it. Makes me wonder what happens to such gods when the world ends." Particularly, what happens to the death goddess when everyone dies? And Jason Abaddon, I don't know if you saw this week, there was like a, he posted this commission, and it was Hellboy and Liz, and they were like drinking beers under a tree. Did you see that? Oh, wait, I think I did see that one. Yeah, that's yeah. Jason Abaddon's piece. Okay. He commissioned yeah. that from Sfumara. Oh, wait, so. I did see that one, yeah. Yeah, that it was, was really cool. So, yeah, really great. Some feedback on A Darkness So Great. Jerry Turnbull said... Jerry Turnbull. Book club member. <laughs> He said, Bifron's hand looks familiar when he's scattered to the winds. Did you yeah. see that? Remember when Diana scatters him to the wind and we see like he's literally scattered to the wind, right? Right, right. Okay, so his hand that's holding the sword, it's just like the wrist and then just a part of the sword. 
and it kind of looks just like the BPRD logo. I just looked back at that, where he's being scattered to the wind, and that does look like the BPRD sword. Yeah, that is really cool, right? It's funny. Nice yeah. little detail. Nicholas Orizaga said, I love the foreshadowing done through the song Diego is singing and the bongos being played by Tony. So when Diego is uh, singing that skeleton song and he's saying, Tumba, Tumba, ba, and then later when the guy's playing the bongos, the onomatopoeia says that. Okay. And he's making the dead come out. So the song is like foreshadowing oh, that the zombies are going right. to come out. That's so cool. yeah, I really like that. I think you need to break out your bongos and bongo that out. <laughs> I sure will. <laughs> Remember um, when you played bongos and put it on the shows? Cute. I know that was well. There haven't been anything else like that. I know that was the like first them. episode. That was like the first and only time there was like a little, uh, a little like excerpt in the middle of the book. See now you can play some bongos. I'm just gonna jam on some bongos for the rest of this show. It's gonna. I'm gonna put it underneath us talking. <laughs> He also said, okay, so this one I felt really stupid about. He said, you guys didn't mention this. While Gustav Strobel is monologuing by the shore's edge, he's also casting a spell. He catches a fish and then he crushes it and then he throws it back in the water and it turns into the boat. Oh. Oh, yeah. He pointed that out and I was just like, yeah. Hold on. And he says that he says Vaughn is so shocked by it that he drops Corvellis's skull. That's too subtle. I think that's... I'm looking at that right now. That is way too subtle. Yeah, so none of us caught that. Come on, I need some sort of a flash or something, right? (laughs) I mean, they pull out, but it makes... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, where else did the boat come from? Well, maybe they just moved down the shore or something. I see it. I see it now, but that... That is a little too subtle. It was subtle. <laughs> he also it's said, cool. one final thing. I'm with Danielle with the rolling of the eyes on the religious folks. This scene where Tony and Arbogast argue semantics between voodoo rituals and bringing about the rapture reminds me of a similar scene from The Long Death where Johan accidentally offended Draco, though she quickly brushed it off as being tired, where he talks about oh, the yeah. baptism and all that yeah. sort right. of stuff. Mm-hmm. And he says, I also thought it was funny that Jiroko doesn't get Nichols' donkey jawbone reference after she right. <laughs> talked about all this baptism stuff in this other episode. So, yeah, I thought that was a he's he's Nicholas. He caught all these little details that yeah. we, I really like how he's book becoming he's becoming a very prominent book club member there. Maybe Jiroko was just more New Testament and less Old Testament. There you go. Maybe that's what it was. Yeah. Drew Campbell said in the last issue when Arbogast says. Why the hell would I bring you? And then he looks at the bottle and says, oh, I think that's him realizing that it was the demon in the bottle that was responsible for bringing Diana's group to him. Which, as the demon reveals later, was the purpose of killing Arbogast so the demon would be freed. Oh, to get out of the bottle. Right. Right, Okay, that makes total sense. Yeah. Oh, sneaky. And he also said... Oh, that makes me think of so many other... Okay, never mind. (laughs) Yeah, and he also said, no spoilers, but I hadn't read these issues since they came out, and now, after having read The Devil You Know, which is one of the later, you know, near the end, he's like, I recognize so much foreshadowing in the Abe Sapien stories that I missed the first time I read them. It always blows my mind how tightly crafted this world is. Yeah. That's exactly where my mind went just now. Yeah, okay. That's awesome. And he said, by the way, since you guys love pickles so much, I have to recommend the best pickles I've ever had. Okay. They're spicy dill pickles from Oregon Brineworks. Oh, nice. I don't know if you would be able to buy them locally, but if you get a chance, try them. Okay. And uh, yeah, right now we're on the best made extreme hot pickle bites <laughs> kick. I can We can only find them in San Antonio. And so whenever we go visit my family, 
we come back. And so this last time that we went, my parents bought us like how many jars of like those pickles? Jars. Yeah, like eight Incredible. jars of those. So awesome. Yeah. They're the bomb. Yeah, they're really good. I've always been a best made kind of person. Yeah. My sister in law has a tattoo of the best made. Oh, the little girl with the, little the tongue girl. sticking out. Yeah. Such a good tattoo. Yeah, that's great. It's so good. Um, what kind of pickles do you like, Matt? The spicier, the better. I yeah. can't remember. And I sour. Think I texted a picture one time to you guys, but I can't remember. Oh, you did text a picture to me once. Yes. Oh, I'm going to have to look for that. Local. I, like a I mean, sour I've got dough. some in the fridge now, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I need to have real bite to them. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Spicy man. Like, pickles I, I, are fucking good. Jason Abaddon said. I love how the religious types have this maniacal certainty to their expressions while everyone else looks uncertain and wary, looking for reassurance in a world gone to hell. And yeah, so Max Fumara, he does draw them very expressive. And so I really like that observation. He also said, looking at all the work and details that went into all these characters, I bet the Fumara brothers relish killing off most of them. (laughs) Ha, we'll never have to draw that bozo again. (laughs) And Mr. Forbes said, uh, the covers to Dark and Terrible are achingly awesome. So much depth and emotion. Abe has it hard, man. And Brian Levy said, I wish I still had my single issues of these. Yeah, and so I actually don't have these issues. I had to get Matt to take the picture. So thank you for doing that. And then I'll need you to do it for this week, too, for the Mysteries of Unland. Do you have those issues? Yeah, and these are like my most beat up copies. I have read these so many times. That's fine, like even I, better. Well, I was like sitting here trying to like flatten out the cover uh. on one of like the corner of the first one is all messed up. Oh well, let's see how it goes. Oh, those pickles are called Grillos. Grillos pickles. Oh, okay, awesome. Yeah, they're Italian dill spears, hot. Pickles. nice okay. yeah it's like it's Hell like yeah. a plastic container and the label is like a pickle reclining in like a lawn chair dope nice. <laughs> with sunglasses and a hat and it says fresh i have to acquire this yeah immediately i'm gonna look for the ones really that drew good. campbell said and then i'm gonna look for those too before we go on to our book club episode for the week, I wanted to talk a little bit about the your podcast, Matt. Your last episode, you talked a little bit about going to Rose City Comic Con and hanging out with book club members. And so, yeah, I just wanted to plug that yeah. episode. It was, you had a great message behind it. Oh, yeah. Uh, friends that you've yet to meet. Isn't that great? That's awesome. I've talked about this before. Like, I don't know what the purpose of everything is, but I do know <laughs> that I've yet to acquire all the friends that I will acquire in my life. And that's funny because... I don't necessarily set out to make friends. Right. You know, I have like this solid group of like six guys that I grew up with. Right. And when I moved away from my hometown, I was like, ah, oh, that's it. I don't, <laughs> I don't really need any more friends. If I make them great, but right. I'm not the kind of guy going around like I need more friends, you know, <laughs> but darned if I don't make them over and over and over again. And I just think it's cool when you get to meet people face to face. Cause yeah. the internet, the internet brings people together, but virtually, yeah, you know? right, yeah. And then when you can do it face to face, that's I I think that's really rewarding, and and I I owe a lot of that to the book club for sure. Aw, yeah, that's yeah, so awesome. Friendship, yeah, yeah. And so, where can they find your podcast at? It is the letterhackpodcast.podbean.com. Awesome, yeah, check it out. All right, and now we're gonna get to our book club episode for the week. This week we're reading. Witchfinder, The Mysteries of Unland. Witchfinder. 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 Yeah, it's been 
at, at the point when I originally read this, it had been way too long. This first issue is only number 11. Oh, right. In, in wow. Finder series. And it's like, give me a break. <laughs> Can I say I love this cover so much here? The Manila oh, yeah. cover? Oh, the trade paperback cover. And yeah. The, uh, and Dave Seward's colors are fucking incredible here. And, and the A is backwards and I love it. Oh yeah, in Unland. I love that. Yeah, I'll talk a little bit oh, more it's about so that. So good, and that you've got the. Um, I'll never think of the name of what this pattern is called, but I love that particular type. Of oh, color. okay. It's yeah. got a specific name. And, oh, it's got the eels on it, the glass eels. Yeah, or that's the from the uh, the hotel that he stays in. And then back here, it's but called it, a. Um, it starts with a D. This is a five-issue miniseries written by Kim Newman and Maura McHugh. Nice. Kim James Newman. Damascus. Is a, Sorry, it's a Damask. What is it? What you say? A, da- a Damask? D- Damask? Dama- I've only ever read the word. I've never heard anyone actually say it. It's either Damask or Damask. I don't know. Oh, okay. Well, it's appropriate on the book club to mispronounce the words it that you're sure saying. It sure is, so. and we try. <laughs> it's part of our calling I now. I could Google it, but I just haven't. And Never make fun of someone for mispronouncing a word because that means that they learned it by reading it. You already said that on the podcast. I know, but it's important because <laughs> it's I often repeating. do this. So. Kim James Newman is an English journalist, film critic, and fiction writer. Recurring interests visible in his work include film history and horror fiction. He published Anno Dracula in 1992. The novel was set in 1888 during the Jack the Ripper killing spree, but a different 1888 in which Dracula becomes the ruler of England. In the novel, fictional characters not only from Dracula, but also from other Victorian era fiction appear alongside historical people. And I believe that Mignola is a big fan of the book. I think we've referenced Anno Dracula before. We actually did talk about this. Uh, I was listening to one of our early episodes of the podcast earlier, and we talked about Anno Dracula, and you mentioned that it was going to come up in the Witchfinder, the... Um, Mystery of Unland. Oh, okay. And awesome. I was just like, holy shit, that's the one we're reading next week. <laughs> <laughs> I for- totally forgot about that. I believe it was in the uh, Reign of the Black Flame episode. No, the Return of the Master episode. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's how far behind I was on the- on our podcast. Huh. <laughs> There's a quick write-up in the letter column to the first issue where Scott Alley says, Mike gave me a list of prose writers who did this sort of material, any of which would work. And I said, but who would be the ultimate writer for what you want here? And he said, Kim Newman, but we'd never get him, so work the list. After a long talk about settling, Mike reached out to Kim. Kim brought in Mara. I'm jumping the gun there a little bit. And we've loved everything they've done in turn. Yeah, it's so awesome. And I was really impressed, too. Like, Mignola and Ali are not credited as writers. You know, it's it's, uh, Newman and McHugh. So... Maura McHugh is an Irish author of horror and fantasy and prose, comic books, plays, and screenplays. There's a really awesome interview with both of them in comic book resources. And I saw this blurb from McHugh. She said, I completed a master's in English on the Irish Gothic and supernatural tradition and studied the likes of Martin Sheridan Lefanu, which was, we've also mentioned in Bram Stoker. So I'm pretty familiar with the Victorian tradition of horror. So the Mignolaverse is just the kind of place I like to visit. Yeah, so I think, like, these people definitely have interests in line with all the stuff that Mignola likes. Art on this series is by Tyler Crook, colors by Dave Stewart, and letters by Clem Robbins. Series covers by Julian Totino Tedesco. Tedesco is a comic book artist from Buenos Aires, Argentina, and he's done a lot of cover art for the Big Two and other publishers. His work is really amazing. 
A little background on this series, this is kind of interesting. Dark Horse started featuring an advertisement for Pool's Elixir in the letter column in January of 2014 with no explanation of its appearance. So it was just like an ad for Pool's Elixir in there. In February 2014, the first teaser appeared on various social media platforms, repackaging the advertisement from the letter columns, but with a mysterious wallpaper. The second teaser made it clear the project was part of the Hellboy universe, thanks to a red band along the top saying 20 years of Hellboy. And this also introduced the phrase, go to Unland. It was that little paper that he gets, and it had the reversed A. The fourth teaser revealed Tyler Crook was the artist for the series and showed some eels as part of the concept work. And then the fifth teaser finally revealed the cover and the title. Yeah, so that was kind of interesting how they kind of like, uh, do you remember that, Matt? Oh, yeah. People were all abuzz about that, man. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was really cool. Like on the message boards and stuff, people were you know, pointing it out. But I, I remember just being like, that must just be for a different Dark Horse book. Or something. Yeah, because I think I remember seeing Go to Unland, but I didn't think anything that it had anything to do with uh, this. Yeah, I had this no universe. idea. That's really cool when they do stuff like that, when it's just kind of slowly teased out like that. Right. It makes it fun. You know, because you get to speculate and yeah, and just you know, ooh, what's it gonna be? Yeah, and they knew people would be really excited to have more Witchfinder, so it was just kind of cool they drew it out a little bit instead of going, "Hey, there's gonna be more Witchfinders, right. there's gonna be eels." You know, <laughs> this first cover by Tedesco with all the eels is really amazing. Yeah, what is this little bottle that he's holding? Is that Pool's elixir? Gotta be right. So we open in the Glass Eel Hotel in Somerset in 1881. Somerset is a county in southwest England. The first thing that struck me about this page was all the um, the details. They're so It's so beautifully rendered. like It doesn't seem confusing or crowded. It's all very elegant right. and very pleasing to the eye. But everything is so it's still so interesting to look at. Yeah. And that's such a tough balance. And I think that both the line and wash and the coloring lend itself to this really well and so you've got his pendant here has a um, bird on it right you've got this little strip of something i guess it's a bookmark but it's got little symbols all over i it. love that you've got the sword here of course there's the fountain pen his little cufflinks i love the damask on the wallpaper i love uh the glass eel right. on the fireplace mantle all the little fish things in the the filigree and stuff in the fireplace and he's got a flask with the lid off so he's been Right. He's had, he's had a couple little nightcap. Yeah, and there's that like a there's like a lantern there on the wall, uh-huh. right? Yeah. And of course, I immediately am noticing the watercolor here, which is yeah incredible. I don't think we've seen that from Tyler Crook yet. Absolutely beautiful and so obvious that's watercolor. So actually, flipping throughout this whole entire story, this whole book, I had to just kind of like I read it and I had to go back and yeah. look at all the watercolor because I was just blown away by. The way that it looks, it's just, you can tell that it's actually watercolor. And then, of course, you know, Dave Seward going back over it and coloring over yeah. that is, yeah. Anyway, really love well, the palette and the um, technique and everything about this story art-wise. Well, I think watercolor is like totally appropriate for the story. Like the more Absolutely. you read it, the more oh, obvious right. that might be. Wow, I didn't even make that connection. But, wow. you know, because everything looks wet, right? But the technique, I've never seen him do it before this. So that might just yeah. be me, but he has mastered this technique. Mastered it. As right. of today, right? Like, <laughs> like if you read uh, Harrow County, oh my God. Oh, yeah. It's amazing. So anyway, um, I do think this first panel strikes me that in the script, they were like, all right, let's design this hotel room before we start. 
right? right. Which makes sense, right? Because we know a lot. Of, I'm jumping ahead again, but I a lot of the story takes place in this hotel room mm-hmm. or some key points, key scenes. And I think that they were like, you know, like you said, the bookmark, everything. Yeah. I think all of that was in the script. Set and setting. Right. And they were like, we'll just figure this out right off the bat. Yeah. And here's what we'll show in the first panel. And and it's effective storytelling. I'm I'm already yeah. drawn in by all of this. Right. It's, it's very well done as far as the storytelling goes, for sure. Yeah. Regarding the watercolors, so in the back of the one of the omnibuses, I think it was the one that had Russia, there was an awesome Tyler Crook Kate, and that was watercolored, and that was like a commission. And then um, Jason Abaddon actually shared a commission that he had done by Tyler Crook, and it was Abe and Daimyo clinking little glasses. Oh, yeah. And that was watercolor, too, and it looked amazing. Yeah. Well, look at the back of the this sketchbook. Or it talked about how he first started off doing it as a blue wash because he thought it would help, like keep his lines crisp for when Dave Sue would go into color. But he right. said it, it turned out to be. Um, it wasn't really even helping on them. Well, he said it didn't make it easier, so yeah. they just went with the normal gray wash. Right. <laughs> yeah, I'm just very impressed by it, and it really puts you, like you said, it's perfect for this story. And along that same line, I have to say that this is my shit entirely. Oh, yeah. Like, I really it's dig great. the whole... <laughs> it's like X-Files, but in the Victorian era. Sure. It's very, yeah. And so, you said that was a lantern on the wall? It looks like a giant lint roller or something. Right, that long thing. That's the only thing I can think of is, is that, that it's lantern? some sort of, like, lantern well, it or like light. a plaque underneath it. I think I it, it might be a, some type of a weapon. I thought it was like a periscope. Oh. Not a periscope. Uh, telescope? I don't think they were called huh. telescopes, though. Spyglass? Yeah, but I think it's... Oh. It doesn't look huh. good. It's going to come up later, but... Edward Gray sits at a desk and he writes a letter. He's That's writing... Excellent handwriting. He does. <laughs> He's writing about his account of his investigation at Hallam. This commission is beneath me. A simple murder, and yet... We cut to a day earlier... And so let's talk about this page layout really yeah, quick. Yeah, amazing. Um, so this is really interesting. So they're in this lab and they're looking at these animal cues under a microscope. So animal cues, that's an old school term for a microscopic animal or a protozoan, like an amoeba an or amoeba. a paramecium or something like that. On these first couple pages, while they're here in this lab or whatever in the morgue, the outline has all these like little animal cues everywhere. Yeah, it's really interesting. Miss Goad, the woman looking in the microscope, she says Her Majesty wouldn't like to know she's ingesting these. Her Majesty would not care to think she was ingesting these miniature grotesques. (laughs) It's excellent. And Dr. Lewis says None of us can avoid them, but some of these are unusual. And we see Edward Gray against the wall in the back. And then this guy next to him at his desk that we've seen in other Ed Gray stories, he's got his desk in the morgue for some reason. <laughs> I think we talked about that yeah, last time too, right? before they knew about germs and, also, and stuff. It also looks like he's eating a piece of cake. Right, so last time he was eating something uh, like that too, right? <laughs> I guess that's before the sanitary guidelines. So the pathologist is working on this guy. They have a dead body there. And he says, classic drowning. We assumed he'd slipped in the bath or been shoved in the river. Then Dr. Lewis noticed the smell. The wife drinks pulls elixir, Dr. Lewis says. I know that sulfurous pong anywhere. Supposed to be good for you, isn't it? Quite the tonic, this other guy says, and we're going to learn his name is Mr. Silk. If you drink it, 
breathing it is not recommended unless you have gills, Dr. Lewis says. And we see the little ad at the bottom of the pool's elixir. And so that's the one that was in the letter column as like a teaser. Yeah, so that that reminded me of like you know ads you would see back in the day for like radiation infused water that people would drink all the time. Oh shit! Snake oil and shit. And people like I remember reading the story about this one guy who like was so behind this radiation infused water he drank it until his jaw fell off. Oh my god! Yeah, it's quite the tonic. Like, yeah, it helps so with everything. That's what Silk said. He said it's quite the tonic, and so that's the the little <laughs> ad. So. I like that little line. He's like Pulls kind of Alexa, plain. miracle of the age. An effective remedy for gouts, coughs, female hysteria, dropsy, the rheumatism. Like, it's incredible. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's a great old school ad. It says, purest water from the rivers of Somerset, galvanically infused with secret health-giving minerals. And you still see shit like this everywhere. <laughs> this has not changed at all. And see, it says seal of royal approval applied so that's like FDA oh right approved i guess but it's like when it says patent pending or something like that or yeah. yeah so they don't have approval yet thanks for pointing that out matt well it makes me think of like uh supplements you can get that have their own like approval thing it's not uh. fda approved it's like it's like right. we're the adspy approved yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> they also noticed this weird electrical burn on the dead guy's neck Far be it for me to balk at afternoon tea in the mortuary, Mr. Silk. But why am I here, Ed Gray says. Silk says the dead guy was important from Lord Chamberlain's office, sent to inspect Pohl's elixir, because Pohl had applied for this royal warrant. That royal warrant means that he could make a lot of money, and now this guy shows up drowned in Pohl's elixir. Miss Goad says she's recommended the Queen to stop drinking the elixir, but Her Majesty is willful. Which majesty is this? Wouldn't it be uh, Victoria? Huh. Oh, right. 1881? Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. Was this particular queen into stuff like this? I should have looked that up. Did I didn't even think get, to get that research angle. Like a, a, which queen was it that got, was like, she kind of had a hard time with uh, her like mental mm, state? Uh, it was Alexandria Victoria. Huh. I wonder if that's who... Oh, that's interesting. That, well, I'll have to look that up, but that might be a neat historical fiction connection. Gray thinks it's a simple murder. It's not my bailiwick, he says. This, the jargon used <laughs> in this particular book puts me over the moon. I really love it. I love this whole thing. And so bailiwick, that means one sphere of operations or a particular area of interest. So it's basically like him saying, this ain't my bag, baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody else's job. It's very much not my shit. You could just make shit up to sound like that. You could just be like, that's not my particular hinkle pink. And like people would believe that that was a real thing to say. Goad says, since he's by royal appointment, Edward Gray, it's an opportunity to show trivial detectives how it's done. Before that, she says, it's one of those new industrial towns, all straight roads, tidy cottages. I counted six uses of the word tidy. Oh, yeah. interesting. In yeah. the first two issues. And so I don't know if that's just like common term mm. or if it's some sort of foreshadowing. Right. That's interesting. Very interesting. Tidy, tied, you know. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Like a water theme. Well, and there was another lady that's obsessed with tidying. Oh, you're yeah, right. You're keeps right. coming up. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was just weird. And no pubs. Right. That's what, that's what Silk his says. His face is great. 
Here's a miracle elixir you can rely on, the pathologist says. Scotch whiskey. Good man. <laughs> that, is, that is a good one. Good man. I like how Edward Gray, Sir Edward Gray, is constantly scowling. Every oh, yeah. single so page yeah. with his face on it, he is so fucking mad and just annoyed. <laughs> He's very, yeah. So his face never changes from this expression. Right. I love it. It's good stuff. On the train, Gray is glad to get out of the city, but still kind of peeved that this commission is using him like a bloody policeman. Suddenly, he sees a reflection of Zora in the window. A phantom walks at your back, hooded, she says. And then he sees this hooded figure that was also teased in in the service of angels. The ticket guy coming up snaps him out of it. I like that they include. Yeah. I think this is the only time that they do it, but they also, you know, they have to so touch on that in the story. This is so yeah. X-Files. I just, I really love it. It's so weird that this is the guy from Hellboy in Hell, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, it, yeah. I mean, if you keep thinking he ends up stitched together by those demons in Hell and then yeah. they get yeah. the mask and the cloak and it's just really. Amazing. That's quite an evolution, you know. Yeah. One of my favorites. Yeah, so I was going to say that we do know that's him, right? So, yeah. So, I mean, oh, yeah. Does at one point he just like decides to haunt himself every once in a while? He's all like, (laughs) this is what we're doing, buddy. We're going to be this. Amazing. (laughs) That's amazing, Aubrey. I love that. He's like, oh, Oh, where where are you going? I got to go haunt myself. I'm on a train right now. I'll be back in five minutes. And I always, I, awesome. I always really like these stories. We were talking about it before uh, we started recording or whatever. You were saying something about how, like, initially you weren't so much drawn into it, but then, like, when we start talking about it, you're like, oh, oh yeah. yeah, I do enjoy this or something. Yeah. Well, okay, yeah. So I, what I was saying was, I mean, the, I didn't, I wasn't really too too jazzed about this story, to be honest. Okay. With you. And that's kind of how I feel about all the Witchfinder stories. But then, like, when I get together with you guys and we talk about it, I really enjoy them. So yeah. I keep that in mind when I read it and all okay. that. But well, I mean, there something... are parts of this I'm just all like, meh. <laughs> yeah. But I see, and I personally, when I'm reading it, I'm like, oh, yes, we get to read this now. Great. Yeah. And so that's something that I am grateful for. The, for the book club, yeah, you, it's like you know that's what it, literally the whole reason sure. we started doing this is the com- sense of community, like talking and having a dialogue and and realizing what everyone appreciates about the story and what they've seen and what you might have missed, and so everyone gets to kind of share their thoughts and feelings, right. and that's what makes it a book club. And then friendship, and we tell you what to read, and then you read it and we talk about it, <laughs> and job. then you send us, hey, you damn guys, back to you, John. <laughs> <laughs> Arriving in Halam, waiting for Gray is Walker Morse, manager of Pool's Works, and Constable Lawless. So wait, okay, does this guy look like H.P. Lovecraft on purpose, or is that right. just an accident because everyone <laughs> right. used to look kind of silly, like a silly right. goofball? I like this guy, Walter. The cop is named Lawless? Right, yeah. <laughs> right. Is that a giveaway or what? Like, yeah. Sure, yeah. And it's always this weird thing. You show up to a weird little town. You know the X-Files. You show up at the weird place. Everyone's a little bit weird. And you sure. meet the two people that live in the town. And they're like, well, here's the case that we're doing. <laughs> and it's a very... I just love this so much. I love everything about it. They say Sir Horace Poole had a stroke. And his son sent them to help Gray. They say it's Halam's first murder. And he's like, it's practically our first crime. We are a model community. And here he says, tidy up again. You can tidy up all you want. But chaos comes creeping back, Gray says. 
He suggests they walk instead of taking the branded stagecoach to the Glass Eel Hotel. I would stay at the Glass Eel. Yeah. I, I want to stay at the Glass Eel. <laughs> they say Halam was all a marsh, but it was drained for civilized people to live. There was nothing, just eels to eat. And everyone married their cousin, the constable says. <laughs> this, uh... So when they said that this place was a swamp and they drained it, he's like, hey, that's just like Houston. <laughs> that's this, right. Honestly, we didn't have eels, though. <laughs> what the fuck is this little baby? I know. I was going to say, so by the way, Ed Gray sees this little baby in a carriage. It's got these weird black eyes. It looks all, baby. I don't know, just looks unsettling. You wonder if Ed's thinking like, Man, fucking babies, man. <laughs> They're all fucking creepy. We're I mean, like, no, 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 dude. This is actually weird. And as they walk off, it like points at them or something. I, it's what like, is this? They arrive at the bottling plant. Morse mentions that the elixir is river water and they add health giving ingredients. I started to get so freaked out on this page because everything went all wibbly wobbly. Oh, yeah. Look at the art. It looks all, all fucked up. Yeah. I love it. But it's immediately as soon as you get to this page, it's super different. It's right. all wiggly. You know, it it made me think we were looking at it through that baby's eyes. Oh, oh right. Okay. Okay. But then we oh, see like, uh, but then we see like over a bridge, and he's like river water. So later yeah. we're gonna see through. The, uh, so spoiler. We're, later we're gonna see the viewpoint from some eels. So right. maybe this is what oh, we're seeing right. here, right? Cool. Subtly, but well, we I mean, don't know it. So that line where they're like, "This is where we bottle. This is just river water, and we add minerals or something." Right. Like that. It reminded me of that Futurama episode where they go to the slurm factory and they <laughs> find out what's really in the slurm. <laughs> oh man! And when they're talking about that, Ed Gray says, "And animalcules unknown to science," <laughs> but they just keep talking and they ignore that comment. And we see a statue of Halam, Sir Horace's first son. He drowned in the marsh which is why Horace drained it, and everything that's been done there has been done in his memory, Morse says. It's going to change an entire topographical habitat. Yeah. That's their habitat. Well, I mean, this this is 19th century progress. You know, we can't <laughs> be stopped for mere animals. <laughs> oh, boo. Of course, I'm kidding, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, of course, of course. Yeah, so they arrive here at the Glass Eel Hotel. I want to stay at the Glass Eel. I already said that, but I really like it. This is where they found the dead guy, Mr. Neal. We also meet Miss Butler. Dad-ass so, wearing a monocle. <laughs> yeah, so she's great, right? I, I just love her yeah, expressions, great. the way that Tyler Crook draws her. It's really kind of humorous. She mentions the warrant for the elixir and how much it would mean for the town. Who do want to hurt Mr. Neal like that, she asks. In the room, Gray first notices that they've cleaned it up. He's like, uh, this is a fucking crime scene. Right. Why did you clean it up before I got here? Pissed. And so he says... People, people don't really know about forensics back then. Right. Nope, they, they haven't invented investigation discovery yet, so they just don't know. He's like, what the fuck? This is not cool. Right. He says, since there's little left in the way of evidence, I assumed you've solved the case. I love that shit. I reckon so, sir, Lawless says. I have applied police methods and expect I know what happened. So, Gray says, a guest is found drowned in an elixir in the hotel room. Some might call that a perplexing mystery, but Lawless of the Levels is on the case. Pray elucidates. Yeah. <laughs> and then so we cut over to this amazing so set of panels. Great. 
right? The suspicions of Constable George Lawless, and it's all put together like this dramatic comic book of this officer. Like a Penny Dreadful? Is that what they call it? Exactly, yeah. 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 Or a dime novel in, uh, in America. Yeah. Right, right. And so this is really great. It says... I believe it was villains that done the poor Mr. Neal, right ruffians. They must have seen him for a mark, trailed him to the glass eel. They forced entry to his room and set upon him fearfully. You fiends in human form, unhand me. I'm a servant of the crown, Neal says as they're taking him down. And then Ed Gray, he like butts in there and he goes, but Mr. Neal carried no particular valuables. And then so it says, perhaps the assailants were agents of a wicked foreign power seeking crown secrets. I like how the one dude, his knife changes into like a, a loaf of bread. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Ridiculous. The perfidious foreigners subjected poor Mr. Neal to vile tortures, but he would not give up his crown secrets, which he took to his grave. The perpetrators will be long gone now, but the fist of the law will fall on them. If not for this atrocity, for some future misdeed, mark my words, Arthur Neal shall be avenged. And then we see like angel cops like leading them to the angel gallows. Babies. So it's basically More like, like uh, cherubs. There you go. So basically, Lawless is just like whoever did this will be punished eventually. The case right. solved. Right. <laughs> yeah, and he's just like a nationalist. Yeah, oh, yeah definitely. Yeah, I also like how when when they switch from criminals to foreigners, how like oh, you know right. their their dress change. Like the one dude's hat changes into like the that French tricorder, and the other guys change yeah. into the. Uh, that Prussian yeah. uh, helmet from a top hat. Yeah, like, that's, that's how he figured it all. Anyway, it's just I'm, hilarious. Applying, uh, yeah, these pages are great. Applying his uh, police methods to right. the case. <laughs> the etching style is such a nice touch. It's really great. The art is amazing on those pages. and But Gray immediately starts poking holes in all of this. No one saw anyone like that. Where would the villain stay in Halam? And Gray starts noticing pages missing from Neil's journal. And a little paper falls out of the journal. This looks uncommonly like a clue, Grace says. Nice. And he opens it and it says, go to Unland. So that's that same thing that was in that teaser. And the A is backwards. Moore says that's an old name for marshes. Now it means the ancient undrained wetlands. So he had an assignment in the marsh and afterwards drowned. Perhaps a local culprit is responsible rather than foreign spies, Constable, Gray says. <laughs> I love that. Uh, that's good. Gray goes downstairs and asks Miss Butler for a room. Morse says he's requested at dinner with the pools at their manor, but Gray declines and says he has a report to write. Gray says he has to go to Unland to discover what evil is at work. The constable says, I warned you, this spook chaser is not a real detective. And he takes out one of those Penny Dreadful comics that we mentioned earlier, Edward Gray and the Soho Vampires. This is the same title as the one that we saw in Lost and Gone Forever. He's like, I read all about you. Right. And right. it's just like, uh, so you read a fucking comic book? Dude, come oh, on. Oh, man. It's like the same kind of thing that when people would read about Billy the Kid. You know, like, right. Right. I read all about you. Right. <laughs> Don't believe everything you read. A useful rule in the detective business, Constable Grace says as he walks up the stairs. Hey, remember the Clint Eastwood movie, The Unforgiven, where Gene Hackman mispronounces the dime novel that that guy's writing? He keeps calling it Duck of Death, but it's Duke of Death. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> He's just like illiterate 
He's the town sheriff or whatever, but he can't read. I love Gene Hackman. The Duck of Death. Oh, I wonder if maybe that's a reference to that. In his room, he's still all pissed off about that. He's like, blast that shilling shocker. So I guess that was another name for those kind of comics. Great thinks, what if his life were like a comic? Always some new adventure, romance challenge. Never any mess, never any terror. I almost wish for a dragon, he says. Oh, did you get that St. George reference, though? With the dragon, because Saint George, he's like, oh, I wish, I wish there was a dragon. Oh yeah, no, he does. He is referencing Saint George. Yeah, yeah thank you for. But yeah, no. That so out. the next page, obviously, very action packed. Yeah, these dragons come out, and again, this Tyler Crook painted work is just amazing. really amazing. Yeah, I really correct. love it. I mean, you can't stress it enough. Well, of it course, they've so cool. coming yeah. in over the the watercolor too. But yeah, it's just so effective, and it's yeah. they they do it real well, and so. Yeah, so there's these three giant eels. Like, where are they just flying through the air or something like yeah, that? Yeah, I guess they so. They come yeah. in through the hotel room and they just start crashing and everything around. And so Gray well, has to made fight of them. Magic, so right. I mean, and so he grabs his sword. It's um, a knife. Or it's a knife, I guess. It's kind of like a small. It looks like a sword. It looks though. like a sword, but I guess it is kind of like a knife. Yeah, it is. A well, knife, I mean, he even though. calls it a knife. Yeah, and there's some great action as he's like hopping over and sliding under these eels to get over to the knife. And then he unsheathes it and he says, Thank heavens I reached my Athane. That is A T H A N E. So an Athame, that's A T H A M E. That's a ceremonial blade, generally with a black handle. It is the main ritual implement or magical tool among several used in ceremonial magic traditions. A black-handled knife, called an athame, appears in certain versions of the Key of Solomon, a grimoire originating in the Middle Ages. And so we've referenced the Key of Solomon a lot already in this series. As he pulls the knife out. He also talks about how it's a weapon of arcane and mystic import in the shape of a knife. And so this is one of his weapons that he's using. I just really like this because we talked about it in Lost and Gone Forever. He kind of had this breakthrough where he realized like, you know, different kinds of magics where he could use them and it all just because it wasn't like religious in nature. Yeah. It wasn't it wasn't it, like inquisitor type stuff. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so and now we see that he's using this knife or whatever. So I like this panel where he says, but it's still a knife. I want to talk about that a little bit because there's all these like motion lines on there. It almost reminds me of James Heron. Oh right. You know, um I just really like that panel. I just really think that that is amazing how they were able to do the colors and everything on that you can kind of see the colors like bleeding over to create the motion of him like swinging this knife the eel says we're not double your prayers do not affect us and he's like yeah but it's still a knife right yeah, that's good. <laughs> and yeah so he cuts into these eels and they also have some sort of electrical powers too because it looks like they shock him they're electric and, eels yeah throw him backwards well, and I I want to point out the way the captions on that page where he says "still a knife." That's from his journal, right? Oh, oh okay, yeah. that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Cool. yeah. Doogie Howser moment. Yeah, because it would be like, is that that's not like an inner monologue, right? Sure. So that's him. That's him. Like that's his account. Because that's what he was doing the oh, in the beginning. That's, so that's great. Cool. He picks up an object which, to me, distinctly looks like some type of a club. Of yeah, some sort. that's the thing we saw on the wall. Yeah, earlier. it doesn't look like an. You're right. It doesn't look like a spyglass here. What is that no, thing? Or a torch? It looks like a club. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't look like a a lint roller. <laughs> <laughs> uh, ye olde lint roller. There you go. 
because it had that tiny plaque under it. Like it has some sort of historical importance and then he grabbed it just to use it. Right. Like well, he would grab a candelabra. And he takes it and he just starts beating these eels yeah, with, it, yeah. with it, which is really great. I like how he knocks the one and knocks its head back into the other one. Right. And then he whacks the other one. <laughs> yeah, the action is great on this. And so the eels are telling him to leave. They tell him, leave or die. And they retreat. When they're saying that leave or die and they retreat, I'm like, aren't you the ones who just got your ass kicked? Right. <laughs> <laughs> We're not leaving because you kicked their ass. We're leaving because we have somewhere to go now. We right. have to be somewhere. And so Gray closes the window that they came in through and he pulls the shades and he throws his letter in the fire. I will not have leave. I will have business here. I will solve the mystery of Unland. Chapter 2, another great cover by Tedesco. Oh, yeah, this cover is fucking wicked. <laughs> yeah, it's really awesome. This must be the next day, I'm thinking. Gray meets with Constable Lawless and Walter Morse. They stand in the wrecked room, and the constable asks Gray about his attackers. They were ruffians, of course, and doubtless foreign, he says. Uh, <laughs> that, yeah. look, that look on Lawless's face is all like, yeah. motherfucker. And this might be the only fucking panel where Sir Edward Gray is not scowling. Oh, that's great. <laughs> He's got a, there's a little bit of mirth. Right. There's a little... Well, no, no, well down here he has a... So, yeah, so Miss Butler comes up and she comes to clean the room. They already mentioned earlier she's got to clean it. She tells Gray... Says, it needs to be tidied. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> she says to not let all this give Gray the wrong idea about their lovely little town. Indeed, it's shocking, Gray says. <laughs> He's really enjoying that. He's savoring that right. moment. And you love to see it. <laughs> and so Ms. Butler shoves him out of the room to clean it. Gray says. To tidy it. Yeah, you're right. Gray says he wants to retrace Neil's footsteps. And Walter says he breakfasted there. First order business, Kippers. Oh, Neil man, wasn't poisoned by a hotel breakfast, at least. Yeah, so I he's love like, that. he's excited yeah. for breakfast. He's a breakfast man. You know, you gotta respect that. I like this guy. I feel like I would hang out with this guy. <laughs> Kippers is like it's hairy. Um, yeah, it's like fish. Yeah, oh, it's hairy, nice. Right. Okay. Outside the bottling factory, Walter describes how Horace started selling medicines. Then the elixir took off. They do the whole process in town. They make the tonic, bottle it, and ship it out. And we get a look inside at these enormous vats. This is really cool here. I like well, all the design. Well, it looks super weird, too. It doesn't actually look like any type of machinery. Yeah. Might be, it might, is historical. They've, they've got a little historical fiction going here, which I love, because it's real weird looking. Like the kid uh, with the uh, cylinder phonograph there. Yeah, it's just... Playing some worker music for them. Right. Well, the, the horn is huge. And it, yeah, down here it says, Temperance ditties, happiness rough toil, improving sermons, ancient, modern something. So, and he's got kind of weird oh, eyes. Oh, hymns, ancient and modern. Oh, oh, oh hymns. Okay, okay, yeah. cool. Right on. Yeah. Thank you for catching that. But that is a big horn. And so you have to wonder like... What is the atmosphere in there? Again, that's like set and setting. There's other weird smells. Is it a weird, <laughs> you know, the humidity to the air? Is it a weird texture in the air? And like the sounds and the weird. It just really puts you in yeah. a frame of mind to be super creeped out. Right. And I'm into it. I don't know if you've ever I've heard any of in. these uh, cylindrical weird. Re records, but they sound all weird and creepy. You can like check it out on YouTube. Yeah, they got like a, yeah. a weird tinny sound yeah. to them. 
I'm it, loving this. It's neat, though. Yeah. Sorry. The determination in this young man's face <laughs> is creeping me out. Yeah, it's weird. He's like, you know, it's not like a 45 or a 73. Right. He's right. turning at the right <laughs> angle. Oh, I'm sorry, at the right speed. Morse says only Horace and his family know the whole formula, but employees know enough to oversee the process. Every step is monitored. And moral health is tracked on this giant board. So we see this one guy, and he's like yeah. writing names down. And we see like punctuality, and what I assume is efficiency. One that says temperance or something. Right, yeah. There are rewards for the diligent, Walter Morse says, and rebukes for the slack gray ass. Seldom necessary, sir, Edward. Seldom necessary, Walter says. And Ed Gray is introduced to Edmund Poole. This is the son of Horace Poole. His opening line is, Welcome to Satanic Mills. Nice. (laughs) We also meet his wife, Anna. Edmund hopes Walter Morris didn't bore him too much with all his lecturing. This guy is fond of jesting, John. He's a real card. What larks? (laughs) (laughs) I asked for the tour Neil took the day he died, Gray says. Now, she's got what I would call a neck corset. Which, aesthetically, dope. I'm into it. But (laughs) practically, could not tolerate it for even a second. Don't understand it. But later, it becomes clear why this particular aesthetic has been adopted by this character. Edmund says, terrible business. The fellow ate with us the evening before, you know. Then father's stroke. It's been trying. Anna is distraught. And Sir Horace Grayass... Bedbound and can't speak, Edmund says. The quacks hold out little hope. Seems I'll be running the show earlier than anyone expected She's or wanted. Some tonic over here. Yeah. I'll have to memorize that dreaded formula now, Edmund says. Did you and your father escort Neil around the factory, Gray ass? I was down with a bug, Edmund says. He and Walker gave Mr. Neil the grand tour. Father was full of fizz that morning, eager to secure the warrant. No indication of brain fever. Where did Mr. Neil go from here? Edmund asks. The pumping house, Walter says. The old man's pride and joy, Edmund says, looking down. And as they start going along, they see this older dude, one of the workers, this mustache guy with goggles on. We must bring old Diggory, Edmund says. No one knows the factory like Diggory Fenn. Old Diggory is immediately my favorite character. (laughs) As soon as he's introduced. He looks a little apprehensive about this whole thing, right? He also accompanied Neil and Horace on the tour. Diggory says there's no place for the likes of him with fine company, but Edmund insists. He says his father often said, without old Diggory, I'd never have tamed Unland. Anna says, Sir Horace rewards his informants well for yielding their secrets. And for their punctuality, efficiency, cleanliness, continence, and demeanor, Edward asks. As they exit the factory, Gray looks at the board where they were writing names and notices a name under the column demeanor. It says, Katie Bristow. And the A is backwards. And the one on patience as well. I want to say all the A's because it says Halford over here. All the A's are backwards. So he noticed this guy's handwriting. All the A's are backwards. So he's like, okay, this is the thing. Right. And nothing else strange happens at all, right? Oh, wait. This kid has a giant frog tongue. (laughs) (laughs) Creeping me the fuck out. So weird. So yeah, this kid that's that's, uh, turning the record player thing at the end. There's like this weird like... <laughs> you know he's sweating. He's got a corn. He, he's sweating. He's got to. He's got to lick his his sweat off the brow. <laughs> uh, don't like that. 
We cut to Gray talking to Diggory. Very thorough fan. I never knew drainage systems were so fascinating, Gray says. They has their mystery. <laughs> so good. I love him. And Gray asks if Dr. Neil asked about anything in particular. And so I just love the expressions yeah. on Diggory as he's like thinking about and it. The and the body he, language And he's like, guys. filtration. He asked about filtration. But it seems like Edmund is like, all right, no, that's no, enough. Yeah. You know, you don't need to say all that. And so this is where, on the bottom of the panel, we get these weird panels. Wibbly wobbly things. Where we're kind of looking at it from the eel. We see the eel's eye, and then we see its point of view as they're watching Edward, Diggory, that? Was that and Aubrey? Edmund talk. Are yeah. you that said originally that that's probably the eel's perspective? No, I you said, said that. that. Oh, you said that. <laughs> Good job earlier pointing out that it's the eel's perspective, because that ah. turned out to be what it is. Good yeah. stuff. <laughs> but the tension building in... The body language, the expressions, all of this, the way that the scene is set even. Right. Is they're able to build this intuitive kind of a attention for the reader, which I really admire. Gray asks, did Sir Horace have what Neil wanted? I believe Father invited Neil to dinner for that very purpose, Sir Edward, Edmund says. Who could resist pre-prandial filtration schematics eh <laughs> i mean honestly who can resist that right. anna says they were an awfully long time in sir horace's study before dinner the soup cooled did neil leave any papers gray ass i'm afraid i didn't notice anna says and so they dismiss themselves they said that they're going to be going but they invite gray to come over for dinner beef and ale pie no fish sounds uh, <laughs> interesting and gray's like I'll be happy to dine with you. I hope you'll permit me to pay your respects to your father. If the poor fellow is up to it, Edmund says, good day to you. And he's smiling here, too. Yeah, he's like, ha, ha, ha. Is that Everything's it? fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then as soon as they leave, and we can still see the eel watching in the background, Edward kind of like puts his hand on Diggory's yeah. shoulder, and he shows him the go to Umland. Ah, so good. And then Diggory's like, meet me at the Lesser Bridge outside town, 6 o'clock. So I, I love just, everything I, about this. I love this moment. Yeah. It's really good, yeah. So he was trying to get Neil to go to Umland the whole time, right? Right. So yeah. this is great. It's a clue, but he's just picking up where that guy left off. Sure. Can I say that? I mean, pretty good. Even reading or saying the word Unland is... Ah, fills me. It's with awesome. Like a, yeah, I like it. <laughs> so we cut to Unland, and we see those three giant eels, and then we see this one guy with the mustache. Is that Lawless? I assumed it was Lawless. And then we see someone in an eel costume. They have a helmet on that looks like uh, the face and mouth of an eel. It looks like Serpentor from GI Joe. Right? Oh yeah, <laughs> he should one. He needs to bust out with this. I command. <laughs> He's such a whiny little shit. I fucking hated that guy. <laughs> but that is Lawless. You can see his uniform at the collar. Oh, okay. You're right. You're right. And so the person in the eel costume tells the eels, you shouldn't have tried to kill Gray. They say he is dangerous, Mare. Gray was pissing off home to London, fishhead. Lawless says, thanks to you, he's going to stay and pry until he finds something. Or he's stopped, the eel says. And if he stops, someone else will replace him. It'll be all the queen's horses and all the queen's men's necks, Lawless says. Unland doesn't fear the London queen, the eel says. 
but you should fear me, the person in the costume says. And so they called this person Mir. I just like how the two of them are just talking. They're just chastising those three yells. Right? Like, why the fuck did you go? <laughs> we had this under control. He was ready. He didn't want to be here. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, but that's absolutely right. And so the eels are still like persistent about this. And so they say, we will strike. And then so this character, Mare, kind of does something. All these like little eels come up and they totally like shred up the big ones or something. Piranha eels? Something something like like that, that. right? Has anyone ever tried to figure out that language? No, and we talked about this on the on the show before. I think that I mean, somewhere out there there has to be a translation. I would think there had to but be. But nobody has cracked Where? it. Nobody has figured I mean, it out. You got to think of all of us nerds, right? right? And and the amount of <laughs> time in our lives we've spent reading and rereading this and no one's ever committed time to figuring that out. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I'm not going to do it. Right? But, um, me neither. But I mean, somebody wrote a Klingon dictionary. Come on. <laughs> yeah. I, I, right. I, I think that there has to be some sort of, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I'm completely wrong. But but yes, the, the mirror, when it summons all these little ones to tear apart the big ones, it uses that Hyperborean frog language. Oh, so are those glass eels, maybe? Oh, okay. Ooh. Yeah, you're right. Because there's also, on next couple of pages, they sort of... They show a description of eels later, yeah. Let's come back to that, yeah. Unland will recover, but you will rot in the water. So says the mirror. The eel costume person says, over the corpses of these giant eels, we can see that they've totally been torn apart. Yeah, and so, you're absolutely right, Matt. We cut over, and Ed Gray's at the Eel Museum... And he's trying to submit a ticket that's already been punched. Like, they just pick it up off the yeah. floor and be like, let me see if I can get in with this. Okay, so I used to work in a movie theater. People would dig through the trash to bind the uh, the large bucket so they could get the free refill. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Gross. So people have been doing that for a long time. Yep. <laughs> the, the lady at the booth calls him on it. And so he's like, okay, well, how much? And she's like, six pence. And he's like, is it worth it? If and you like eels, <laughs> I love that. she says. <laughs> And so he just like he just has this really stern expression on his face as he hands over the money. He's all like, "Here's your fucking sixpence." No, but I mean, I like, yeah. If you like eels, it's a fucking eel museum. Do you want to see the eels or not? And so yeah, we get some pages of the eel museum. I These would are go really to the eel cool. museum. Yeah, it's really nice. Oh, and- I would totally check out it. Cool museum, science-related museum or art-related museum, not Nazi museums. Right. No, <laughs> and I yeah. just love all the. Um, the old school kind of diagrams and everything. Yeah. It's got like the diversity of our native eels and it has like all the different kinds of eels on there. And so on there we see glass eel, which looks like those. You're absolutely right, man. It looks like those little eels that came out and got those other ones. And we also see one that's called Elver. Um, so that'll come in into play later. Lampreys aren't eels, somebody says. And Edward hears a voice. Um, but he's saying in front of this poster that is talking about King Henry the First died after overindulging in lamprey pie, and so that that is an actual myth. Although historians say he just got food poisoning. Oh, they're not. Grace says they look like eels. You're no fisherman, this woman says, and she's like in this black shroud, right? Yeah. A waterman knows his eels, she says. I fish as a lad, Grace says. Trout mostly. Pfft. 
trout. <laughs> She's like, I don't want to hear any of your fucking yeah. trout stories. <laughs> Hereabouts, we lived on what we could, pull from the water, fought pike for minnows, fought each other for pike. Sir Horace has changed that, hasn't he? Gray says, once we live by tides and currents, the woman says, not the timekeeper's bell. We drank shrumpy, not tonic. So what is that, shrumpy? I meant to look that up. Like a scrumpy. It's cider. Ah, yeah. okay. Thanks, so, Matt. I, I just figured it was cider. I figured it was like what he stole to pocket as his elixir. Right, right. And so the shop is closing, so that's the end of that scene. Later we see Gray and he's waiting for Diggory. He's like, It's six already, where's Fen? And then out of the water he comes out in this like old school diving suit. So don't you need like at least a couple people to like help you? Walk around and shit in one of those. Right. Yeah, yeah. And one of them to pump the air from Super the Superhuman strength, yeah. And so he comes Look at out. That. This marshland, this is unland. Oh, right? yeah. Super yeah. Good. I love that view from the water as he's like smoking the cigarette, too. That's a yeah. great panel right there. Uh, we don't advocate smoking cigarettes, though. So. No. And. Oh, on that note, it is. Okay, so. The day that you're listening to this podcast, it's five months officially. Ah, congrats, oh, man. Good for you. Wow. That's Great all, job. That's it. Yeah. You did it. I mean, it only what do they say? It only takes six weeks, right? Right. right. Sure. Yeah. Congrats, oh, man. Oh, yeah. You're, you're in the clear. Diggory calls out for Edward, and he turns around, and he's shocked to see him in his diving suit. He's like, what are you wearing? Need <laughs> help, Diggory says. I'd be more at ease if you dropped the harpoon. I am not a whale, Grace says. So Diggory gets on the ground and Gray takes off the helmet. And he asks him, what's wrong? They're in the river. They'll know I saw you, Diggory says. And Gray's like, who will know? Don't matter, too late. You told Neil something before he died, Gray asks. Meant no harm, Diggory says. I told Mr. Neil about the filtration system. Changes be made. Things be let through. The pact. It be not right. But bain't right before neither. The pact, Gray asks. The mirror, Mona. You need a doctor, man, Gray says. And then so, on this bottom panel, Diggory, he's got like these little eels coming out yeah, of his diving suit. I will suit. not be looking at any of this this looks the like those the end of the, until <laughs> the end of this issue. Those look like those little glass eels that we saw on that poster. And he says, Unlan is rising. And then look at for, his face. Yeah. You can like see him under his skin, right? Yeah. yeah. It's a no it's from gross. me. And he starts coughing up eels, and they start coming out of his eyes and his nose. And then we turn the page, and his face just totally explodes with eels. Uh, squelch. <laughs> Ed Gray steps back. Poor wretch. And so we just see his face is totally destroyed. It's like down on the skull and stuff like that. Fen didn't manage to pass on what he knew. But I don't need a waterman to tell me when it's raining. I nice. love this this panel where he's like walking with the harpoon in his hand and the crack of lightning. Yeah, that's great. Oh, so cool. Chapter three. Really awesome cover again. Tedesco has an awesome style for this series. I think the covers go really well. I love this scene. So this we is so great. We open up in front of the Glass I, Eel Hotel. I read and reread this scene. <laughs> Constable Wallace, so he's there with his family. And it's like a picturesque family, right? It's a mom and a dad with two kids, a boy and a girl. And Gray overhears the constable talking to them. He's saying, just stand up straight and tell him what I told you. And he comes up, he's, he's like, schooling the witnesses, constable. Lovely weather for ducks. And so lovely weather for ducks, it's a common idiom that people have used. It's kind of one of those yeah. things like you're like, 
oh, I totally got soaked in the rain, and you would go, yeah, lovely weather for ducks, or something like that. So, yeah. <laughs> people in the past were weird. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've heard people say I've heard people say that to me before. <sighs> the constable says, this is the Abledum's family. They're typical of Halam, a corrective to any poor impression you might have formed of our town. And so Gray is like, good day to you all. You look of a model family, hardworking, abstemious, and upright, eh? And so the dad's like, indeed, Sir Edward, sir. Halam be a fine place for moral folk. And then this little girl. I love her. <laughs> you kill fishies with that sticker. <laughs> she wants to know about the fucking thing, and she's very. And the mom's like, hope, mind your manners. That sticker be for big fishes. There ain't big fishes around here. She's like real psyched. <laughs> she's fucking pumped. Septon Unlin, she says. Yeah. Ooh. And so the mom covers her mouth. And Grace says, perhaps I should fish in Unlin? Ah, uh, Morrison Cart. So Walter Morris comes up with uh, this carriage. It's right where you said, Walter says. And we see he's got the body of Diggory in the back. Him all bones. The little girl is so great. She's fucking psyched. She wants to awesome. see. She's like, whoa, cool. Bring him to the police station, Walker. I'll send for the doctor, the constable says. And Walker, uh, Walt, he does call him Walker. I thought his name was Walter. Have I been saying the wrong name? Anyway, Morris says there's not much work for a doctor. There's little left of the man. This town has hollowed him out. Don't be wet, constable says. I'm sure the doctor will find this was a natural accident. It's under control. And Gray says, two deaths in as many days. Both bizarre. I'd hate to see Halam when it's not under control. Next, you'll tell me it's not raining. Yeah, it's totally raining right there. I would love to hear what the natural accident was that actually caused this. (laughs) So he was obviously (laughs) scuba diving. Sure. And then uh, somehow he took his helmet off because he wanted to... um, wipe the water off the the glass on the front, and then all of a sudden it attracted these eels because uh, they're attracted to glass. That's why we call them glass eels. There you go. Yeah, that's the policeman's logic. uh, And then his skin fell off. And then they they were, he was rude to them. (laughs) And British did not like people being rude to them. (laughs) And so... The dad of the Abledum's family, he's like, begging your pardon, sir, but I must get back to work. I wouldn't want to be marked for tardiness, right? That must be one of the columns on that giant board. And then he kind of rushes this last part here, right? I'd be grateful for what Halam has done for I and my family. Yeah. (laughs) I want to touch the bones. She wants to touch the bones, man. Your contented workers show was hardly up to Drury Lane standards, Grace says. I like the little girl who got her lines wrong, though. <laughs> and we see the we see the mom. She's like scolding the little girl. There'll be no swim tonight, young miss. Why not? I've been wet already. <laughs> that's, that's she's just got a great, a great scene. point. Just a great scene. I love that little girl. She's so funny. She's fucking adorable. And so Gray and Constable they kind of they kind of go at it a little bit. The Constable says that Diggory's Fen's death is local business, and Gray's like he died in front of me. Lone witnesses to suspicious death can become suspects. I could take you in. The Constable tells Gray. Then you'd have to explain to the pools why I wasn't available to dine with them this evening. And so Constable's like, okay, yes, take your inquiry up to the hill. And then he loses his umbrella. I like this little line where he's like, damn, that was new bot. 
And he goes off after Aww. it, chasing his umbrella. Yeah. The spats here with some eels in the street for some reason. Yeah, so we see those little eels in the street. Yeah. The, the look on uh, Wallace's face when he loses his umbrella, the way his body language, he's got his hands by the uh, Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then he's like running after it with his arms in the air, like a little kid chasing after his balloon. That was great. <laughs> I want to touch their bones. <laughs> So as Gray is pulling up to the pool's mansion, there is an excerpt there. He says, and they said, come let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth is the rest of that line from Genesis 11.4. Here it's talking about the culture of man believed that self-glorification and self-reliance would achieve their greatest goals. So they build the Tower of Babel, right? Poole arrives at the mansion, and the art is just amazing here, too. Yeah, this is really... We get the uh, neck corset back. Oh, right. Bitch, you look great, but I'm sure that does not feel good. But right. then later, the fact that there is a reason for this beyond aesthetic, but the, like it makes a good aesthetic, but then there's a reason for it. I'm just like, ah! I yeah. I dig it. Anyway, I love the story. Yeah, so he's met by Anna Poole, she introduces Roberts, who will attend to his needs, and then that guy introduces him to another guy named Blake, uh, who will take his coat and hat. Uh, I thought that British. was really funny, yeah. Anna says, Edmund has one of his heads tonight, so he will not dine with them. I so what is I that? love her look, though. What, what does that mean, though? He has one of his heads. Does that mean he has, like, a headache, or... I'm sure you will prove a more than acceptable hostess, Miss Poole, Gray says... You are too kind, Sir Edward, she responds. A lady is deserving of nothing less. Her face has real character to it, and I really yeah. I love her very specific look. And when Grace says, a lady is deserving of nothing less, she responds, unless one is a witch, of course. Ah, and so Gray's like, oh, I'm the witch finder. Right. You know about all the cartoons and everything. He goes, uh, witches are not ladies, and he's right. Witches are better than ladies. It must be a comfort to be so sure of the distinction, Anna says. How fares Sir Horace? Gray asks. There has been some improvement. He is speaking a little, although his words are topsy-turvy, Anna says. May I pay my respects and perhaps ask him about confidential matters, Gray asks. As you wish, it's best we do so before it gets too late, Anna says. His mind comes and goes with the weather, and this storm promises to be a belter. In Horace's room... Miss Bream looks over him. So here's another lady that we're introduced to. She says that Sir Horace will not rest. And we see him in bed. He's all like babbling incoherently. Anna asks Miss Bream to look in on Edmund. And Bream says he was miserable after visiting his father. And so she leaves. And when she leaves, Anna introduces Edward to Sir Horace and says... He's investigating the death of Mr. Neal. Damn his eyes, Horace said. Did Neal do something to offend Edward Ass? Words wrong, Horace says. Anna says Horace is agitated. They should let him rest. Snake charmer, Horace says. It must be aphasia, Gray says. And so this is the loss of ability to understand or express speech, often caused by brain damage. But yeah, I think that's interesting that um, they're not like, it's the devil, Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like a practical, yeah. actual, you know. He's not possessed by He's looking at the aphasia. scientific version of it, which is right. so funny because it actually is a supernatural thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's good stuff. I'll flip you. Curse me, Horace yells. And Gray's like, do you mean you have been cursed, Sir Horace? 
and he starts searching the room, but Anna thinks it's ridiculous. But well, she's Grace, getting a little. Me thinks uh, she doth protest too yeah. fucking much, <laughs> a little too fucking much there. And Gray's like, it's a common witchcraft. But Anna says Gray has witches on the brain. Halam oh, is built. There. Yeah, she's like Halam is built on rationality. They reject their past superstitions. She says they're not country bumpkins. They have medicine and science. I can assure you, ma'am, that I have seen much that science and medicine have yet to explain, Gray responds. Well, I like how he's looking for the witch's knot or the witch's ladder immediately. Right. So this is the part I thought thinking, eh, I don't really care. <laughs> you know, because this is like, here it is, another person saying, um, we believe in science. And he's like, but, you know, we know. Right, that he's a witch finder. See, this thing was particularly. Um, and so I'm like, I just started getting bored. But then, of course, later on, we what well, we learn, I'm like, okay, so she's just kind of covering. No, that's right, so interesting right, because yeah. to me, this scene is particularly compelling. I was immediately, like, I I picked up interest as as soon as this scene started going. That's so interesting. That's really funny because, like, to me, this scene was one of the most compelling scenes. I just felt like it's just like we we see this a lot in his comics. You know, I don't know, maybe it's just. I don't know. I'm yeah. a sucker sure. for it. I I was really I was really drawn in by this scene, particularly. I got excited about it. Or maybe we don't see it. Maybe I'm thinking about the BPRD 46. Okay. Yeah, mm. where she's all like science fucking. Um, oh, uh, Doctor Ryu. Yeah. Yeah, you're thinking of that story. Yeah. But anyway, I'm just like, yes. In reality, it is science, but in we know in this story, it's right. Not. <laughs> But I do like that pouting expression that she has when he mentions the witch's ladder. That's a good panel. Yeah. Anna says, credible doctors diagnose Horace with stroke. Dr. Gaskell did not look for corn dollies under the bed. Mm. In that case, Dr. Gaskell was remiss in his duties, Gray responds. Oh, <laughs> He's got some great comebacks yeah, to her and Constable Lawless. I love that. Miss Poole, despite what you think of my calling, I do not seize instantly on the most far-fetched explanation for any phenomenon, Grace says. Yet, once one admits the possibility of a supernatural solution, one can easily produce evidence to confirm suspicion, Anna says. For instance, Miss Bream, Edmund's old nanny, knits while watching over Sir Horace. Has she knitted a witch's ladder, cunningly disguised as a muffler, and she, like, throws the sewing mm. kit at Sir Edward? And I love his expression there as he receives it from her. This sealed the deal for me. I yeah. was like, she is the fucking one who's doing this. Right. Miss Bream is possessed of a cat, Sir Edward, and I'm sure I saw her with a broom once. Do you wish to swim her in the river, Pist? Of course, if she floats, you'd have to dry her out to burn her. Under, Under English, English law, law <laughs> wishes aren't burned, they're hanged. Yeah, that's what Edward Jeez, says. That's, that's a fucking <laughs> cold-blooded response. And they really give him like a whole panel yeah. at the bottom and just his, the, his expression and the coloring in the background. The mood, yeah. yeah, it really sets that mood. And so just then, Ms. Breams comes in and she kind of like interrupts them squaring off. She says Edmund is asleep. Anna makes up an excuse that Edward needs to sew a button as to why he's holding the sewing kit. And he goes along with it. I thought that was so yeah. funny. It's like, <laughs> it's for my suit at the hotel, he says. Yeah, it's like just sparing that lady having to right. get right. <laughs> just then Horace suddenly sits up. Eel wife, he yells. Well, Her face. I, yeah. Well, I never. Been long years since I heard a body called that, Bream says. 
And they decide to give Horace laudanum to put him to bed. That was the line. That was it. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, All right. Bust out the laudanum. Oh, and he says... Fucking calling people eel wives. Right before she says that, he says, Mere rises. Yeah, but laudanum, that's a tincture of opium containing approximately 10% powdered opium by weight. Nice. Reddish brown and extremely bitter, laudanum contains almost all of the opium alkaloids, including morphine and codeine. Hell yeah. So yeah, they're trying to knock him out now that he's saying all this stuff. And he continues to yell out, saying, Mona mine and curse you. They call Gray over to help restrain him so they can give him the medicine. And Roberts comes up to tell them that dinner was spoiled soon. And as they walk out, we see the doll under the bed. Uh, right? So she just said, oh, he didn't look for corn dollies oh, under the bed. Oh, why don't you look for fucking corn husk dolls? And it was There's, right under yeah. there. Yeah. And it's like on top of a pentagram. Right. Right. Some- leaves or something that, right yeah, yeah. not good it's not got like good. needles in the eyes or something and the well, mouth is the, yeah, the, the mouth. mouth is covered which is maybe why he can't talk this is from wikipedia the form of the voodoo doll that is most commonly understood <laughs> is based on a magical practice that is historically derived from europe rather than africa or the americas textual records attest to the fact that certain cunning folk in britain made dolls of a witch out of rags or other materials and then pierced them with pins with the intention of inflicting physical harm on the witch and breaking the bewitchment yikes after dinner we cut to then and gray is thankful for some english country cooking this is what you were talking about there so grateful to be back with the british cooking it's just like really dude come on well i mean that's where he's from but he was probably he was in the old west eating beans out of a can probably (laughs) yeah you know Sorry to be hating on it, but it's just like, come on, guys. He says, back in the U.S., all they have to eat are prairie dogs and beans. Quantities of beans. Canned beans. (laughs) As they talk, Gray asks about that outburst, eel wife. You flinched at it, he says. What does it mean? A vile practice from the old marsh, Anna says. Sir Horace was spitting words without meaning. I like that we don't get an in-depth explanation sure we yeah. are allowed to imagine what the fuck that means right that makes it worse sure i think those ways are gone anna says halam wives are very respectable now that just kind of adds Again, to it yeah. right yeah yes roberts brings the carriage around and gray tells them that it must have been hard on horace losing his wife right after his son halam roberts asks the wife that died weren't mother to the son that drowned sir there was a first Mrs. Poole, Edward asks, but Roberts doesn't answer the question. He just directs Gray to Blake, the other guy, right, who will now walk him to the carriage. Yeah. And so as they walk, Gray asks Blake about the first wife, and he just totally spills the beans, right? I like how he looks around, his little it's expression, good, yeah. and he's like, hmm, let me see if everyone's watching. Well, he uh, he he hands him some money first, to, you know, he bribes him to tell. Yeah, he gives him some coin. See, this guy reminds me of another supporting actor. God, but oh, I never remember anyone's name. The expressions that Tyler Crick does are so good. So it makes you good. think of yeah. Yeah, real people. Absolutely. Yeah, really. Seriously. He says the first wife was Ada Morse, mother to Walter Morse from her second marriage. Horace felt guilty for putting her aside and hired Walter Morse as the manager. Horace was a waterman for all his Bristol ways. He left Unlin, but it called him back, Blake says. Or maybe Paul F. Tompkins if he ever shaved his mustache, but I don't want him to. 
Paul F. Tompkins should be the Constable Lawless. Oh my god, you're right! Oh, it'd be so good. Blake tells Gray, don't go to Unland. Things live on the water. Things as can't abide dryland men. Edward gets in the carriage, and the driver is Constable Lawless, and he seems to have developed an exaggerated lisp. <laughs> or he's just possessed by evil eels. Oh, man. Uh, he's got these two evil eels sticking out of his chest. They're all bloody. And so that is such a great way to end this issue it's right a no here. From me. Chapter four. Love this cover by Tedesco. Have you ever seen an eel? They're fucking awesome. Yeah, they're pretty scary, yeah. They're no, they're fucking metal. Their faces are I really like weird. them. No, I think they're sweet. <laughs> Just because they're scary doesn't mean they're not cool. Yeah, yeah they're super cute. I love them. Amazing opening panel, right? right yeah, Wallace the is fucking like, lightning, and, and, and like he's got the eels coming out, and it's just like it's almost humorous how crazy this this panel is. I just love it so much. <laughs> That's good. And the horses Ty- seem freaked the fuck they out. Are. I know, well, yeah. yeah. Tyler Crook is just killing it on this series. We see the constable, the evil eel version, and Gray is sleeping in the carriage, and we get a flashback to Unland, eighteen forty three, when it was a marsh. This is such a beautiful shot. I love this, the the glowing full moon and yeah. the, the big uh, twisty trees, the burden, and there's like a little possum over here. You know, whenever it's we, so a, a lot of times when we get flashbacks, they have this like sepia tone. Yeah. And right. this doesn't have like a sepia tone, but they do something right. where it kind it's of beautiful. has like well, it's that. It's got a softer look to it. Maybe that's what it is. Yeah. It's a good really way of like putting it. I really like this a lot, yeah. I like this curse where he says, hell's halibut. Yeah. It, it's stuck. Horace says... Um, so we see younger Horace, and he's there with Halam still alive. They're in this small boat that's stuck in the marsh. And Halam is, like, kind of annoying the shit out of Horace. He's telling him how they weren't supposed to go that way, and the mom is better than him. She doesn't get lost and all this kind of stuff. And Halam sees a light. Nixie Lantern, he yells. So he thinks it's a water sprite. That's what a Nixie is. Mm-hmm. Horace tells Halam to settle his britches. It's only moonlight. And Halam mentions Jenny Greenteeth. And so we've heard of Jenny Greenteeth before. Yes, Jenny Greenteeth was mentioned in The Corpse. Yeah. There was some speculation that Gruagak and her had, like, a thing going. Ah. Right? right, he, like, freed her from the, well, from the thing. But he calls her Jenny Greenteeth, wake up, my love. Oh, right, yeah. And then later he's like, that's my girl, right? So, oh, you're right. Um, I totally, yeah. And I've read somewhere along the line that, you know, it was implied that they had some sort of a fling or something hmm. before that. Nice. So who knows? Interesting. Who knows what goes on with the fairy folk. But... <laughs> so in the corpse, he gave her a key to unlock a very old box and awaken Grom, right. who was like the original warthog monster. The Hellboy has to fight. Right. And then Jenny Greenteeth at the end of that issue ends up with the corpse's arm. Yeah. The corpse it... is like, what about my arm? And Hellboy's like, I'm sorry, really, but do you need it? I mean, you're already <laughs> dead. <laughs> and we got to go. But then, yeah, he goes down there and he gets it. Yeah, he says, I'll be back for you, you horrible thing. But I don't think he ever, does he ever go back? No, I don't think so. Not we that don't... we know of. Not that we've so seen. I don't think so. I don't think Green Teeth has been mentioned until right now. Yeah, not again. That's funny because like when I was reading this, I was like, "Oh man, what is that?" I fuck it. The other guys will know. They'll tell me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. Yeah. That was a great callback. 
Yeah, I love that. And Horace says people need to forget about Jenny Greenteeth and all that stuff. There's enough to wonder at without tales for women and dafties. So I guess we're the dafties, right? right? (laughs) Who are you calling a dafty? You you calling a woman. Dude. (laughs) (laughs) We see this woman coming up behind them on her own boat. She was the source of that light that Halam saw. She looks fucking annoyed. I told E to stay off the water this night, Horace, she says. <laughs> the fucking mood. And then Gray just wakes up. He wakes up in the carriage and he looks outside and they're in the marsh. And he's like, this isn't the inn. Last stop, Unlin. I see this panel and I just hear goofy circus music in my head. It's <laughs> so creepy and scary. Yeah, the evil eel constable Lawless. He's stepping down from the carriage. It's so creepy and awesome. Yeah, his eyes are like have moved apart a little bit and stuff like that. It's I so do weird. I like this. <laughs> I guess the eels are like driving him or something, I don't right? Know, yeah. Man. That's that's what I was assuming. Well, I, thought, I, always thought he, I always thought they were in him the whole time. Oh, okay. Oh. Is that what you thought, Matt? Yes. Oh, okay. Okay, cool. I mean, and that's why he was chastising the three big eels earlier. Oh, okay. Yeah, he's that all totally like, makes sense. He's like, he's not a guy. He's a, he's two eels in a meat suit. <laughs> eel man. That's Spoon Man, but he's eels. Sure. What do you think you look like, Lawless, gray ass? And then one of the eels comes out and it bites Gray on the arm. Uh. Die, you towny twerp, Lawless says. Jeez. You don't know anything. <laughs> you don't you don't know nothing. And now you never will. And Gray just headbutts him. That is so awesome. We hear something crack in there, and then he punches him and he says, Black mark for a double negative, Constable. God. <laughs> also, isn't he the townie? Well, I think that uh, he's actually from the Unlin, you know, because he's the Eels, and I, so he's masquerading as a townie. So I'm saying, though, is that, like, Edward Gray's from fucking London. This guy's the townie. Right. Anyway. As he falls down on the ground, he screams, and he has that IE again that we've seen a couple times, and he says, Mirror. And then the horse fucking crunches his skull. That is so crazy. Uh. And Gray's like, whoa, steady. And he like steadies the horse, but somehow he's still alive. Grace says, repent, Lawless. Perhaps you'll be spared damnation. Worry for yourself, Witchfinder, Lawless says. We can both be killed. My bane be in your blood. And we see Gray. That's where he got bitten, right? And we see like his hand is turning red. I like when the horse stomps on the dude's he- on Lawless's head because, like, you know, that's what sn- uh, horses do to like snakes. They'll stomp them to death. Oh, right. Yeah. And they, they see those eels there, and they're like, "We're having none of this shit." <laughs> right. That's a good one. Yeah, horses don't put up with that bullshit. If that is my fate, but I am sure in the certain hope of heaven. You, you are lost, Gray says. You daft, Gray. We both for the pit, Lawless says. The, the pit. pit. Yeah, and what is this Doctor oh. Strange shit going on? Yeah, here? there's like a weird overlay like over his face. Well. Yeah. Uh, maybe he's just starting to trip out. You know? I don't know. Because like, something's going on with his eye, too. Yeah, so in the next panel, it's over Edward Gray's eye, which is really interesting. Yeah. Tight. And then just then, Gray collapses. And this woman pulls up in this boat. She says, the mirror rises. Everything about this story fucking rules. And we return to that flashback. And we see that um, this lady that pulled up to Horace and young Halam in the past. This is Ada Morse, right? This is the first wife. And she's chastising him. She says, I told you it weren't safe. Not for E, not for the lad. 
and Horace says he can take care of himself in the sun. Not in Unland, she says. Jenny Greenteeth will catch me in her net, I suppose, Horace says. You must stop filling the boy's head with water bogeys. It's just a marsh, Ada, Horace says, and there are elvers to be had. We need the money. And so we saw elvers on that poster. They're like another kind of eel. So I guess they're out there catching eels or something. Right. Not that much we don't, Ada says. And then they notice that Halam is missing. So they start running around looking for him and Ada sees a light. I told you never to follow the light, she says. She covers Horace's mouth with her hands as he tries to yell out. She's like, hush, we don't want they to hear. He says, who? And she says, they. And she kind of looks off into the distance. And so we cut back to the present and we see Gray is in this hut, this little cabin. And there's a woman there at the fire. And all these fish on the wall. There's a lot of fish on the wall. And she's singing this song. I got this from justanothertune.com. I loved Alas. It's a song that has its origins from texts as early as the 1670s in a ballad called The Forlorn Lover. The lyrics are rad. But versions of this song are still performed today, 340 years later. A Scottish variant called I Loved Alas was recorded by Ewan McCall with Peggy Seeger in 1956. And so that's the one that I'll cut into the episode. But there's also an English variant with the title The False Bride, published in 1959. From Ireland, we have another song called I Courted a Wee Girl. The song was also known under titles like The Week Before Easter, The False Earned Lover, The Forsaken Bridegroom, Love is the Cause of My Mourning, or The False Nymph. And so most of the the one that I'm going to cut in, they're talking about a her. But here she's talking about a him. She says, I'll never forget him. So she's kind of like made the lyrics too, because right. it's called "I Love to Last." Sure, sure. You know. Oh, dig me a grave and dig it so deep and cover it over with florets so sweet, and I'll turn in for to talk a long sleep, and maybe in time I'll forget her. What were you gonna say, Matt? Yeah. So. This is funny, and you might want to cut this out, but Scott Alley apparently just saw your latest Instagram post and said, he just texted me and said, if you want to hit me up for any insights, do it. I just saw the podcast post about the flying monster. That fight was a specific result of Seba saying, I'd like to draw Abe fighting something that flies. Nice, Done. cool. Oh, wow. Interesting. And so I said, oh, I definitely will. We're recording the Unland episode right now. What is that club thing Gray uses to beat those oh. eel monsters in his hotel room? We can't figure it out. And he said, I don't know. Kim called it a fisherman's club. And okay. so oh. I know what that is. It's a it's bat kinda... club. This oh. is when you catch like a big fish, you have to beat it. Oh, it's fucking brutal. it with a club. God, yeah. So, so it, that's the... why it's decorations in the glass eel yeah, hotel. Yeah, oh. right. That's it's interesting. A, so yeah. it's a bat club and, and um, they make flashlights now, like a bat club flashlight. Oh, so for fishing oh. at night. Nice. So I totally knew All what right, that was. Hey. It just... Yeah, anyway. Man, real-time listener feedback That's what I was right. Scott Alley. That is so awesome. I would, yeah. I'm definitely going to leave this in to the episode because, let me see, by the time it'll come out, people have seen that post. No, that's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. Thank you for that, Matt. 
Yeah, and tell sure. Scott, thank you. <laughs> yeah, well, always know, interrupt I mean, if Scott Alley is texting you while we're <laughs> oh, recording. <definitely. laughs> right. right, yeah. <laughs> oh, so well, back to the last thing, you know, she says she changes it from, you know, feminine to masculine and all that. Uh-huh. Didn't they also refer to, like, all kids as last? And she may be talking about her own kid that she lost. Oh, maybe you're right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Forget who, gray ass. The one that breaks your heart, of course, Ada says. It's a sad song. First love, be always cruel, she says. And it's that same cool goth lady we saw earlier, right? That was telling him, like, yeah. you know, in she the museum. was. Yeah, in the museum. She says she found Gray in the water. He has a nasty bite. Gray asks the name of his benefactress. A fancy title for an old Bissam doing a Christian service, she says. Gray thanks her and says, Not everyone here is God fearing. Oh, they fear your God, all right. Just not as much as they fear theirs. I love her expression in that panel, too, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, that's like classic fisherman look, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. She tells Gray she brewed him a tonic. Not pool's elixir, I hope, he says. I love it when old goth lady brews me a tonic. Yeah. She says this is the OG recipe. Yeah. Not, <laughs> not Horace's river swill. And Gray tells her he knows she's Ada Morris. She says it was a cruel thing to name the town after the kid, Halam. It throws it in her face all the time. And Gray asks what happened to him. I told you not to go out on Unland. Not when Mona was bright and the eels were dancing, but E wanted the elvers. And now we see what Ada and Horace saw that night. There's like these obelisks, right? Also in like a, in a circle. Mm. And there are these people dancing in the middle. And we see like one guy looks like he has like crash symbols or something they're like dancing around oh, yeah. oh there's two yeah. of them with symbols and then there's those eels giant, are there partying those giant eels are there and then the person in the middle is in that mare costume that we saw earlier and then there's like this floating orb green rock or something like in the middle yeah. of all this and they're saying mona mona over and over and there's this booming when i first read this the very first thing i thought of when i saw that floating rock was Abe's origin. Sure, oh, yeah, yes. yeah. Oh, no, I thought the same okay. thing. Yeah. Of course, okay, yeah. Okay, okay. It's very reminiscent Nobody said of anything, and I was like, wait a minute. Are we keeping it a secret for now? Or- <laughs> <laughs> no, I was focused on home dude call- saying orgies, and I'm like, dude, have you? that's not an orgy. <laughs> I think there's, oh, it's like yeah. an orgiastic orgy. type of uh, an environment. Right, like so they, Horace it's... is like, what is all this pagan rites and sacrifices? Yeah. Mona minds the ties and the fertility of the eels. The mirror directs them, Ada says, and then Horace sees the kid. There's Halam, he yells, and all the people turn around and see them. And Ada goes up to the crowd, and she starts asking for mercy while Horace goes and grabs Halam. Ada yells for them to run, and all the worshippers are, like, charging at her or something like that. Drylanders, they yell, and we see Horace and Halam running off, getting away from them. And then we hear this loud booming again. So they jump into the water. Horace tells Halam to shush. Something becoming, he says. And so he's watching the eels in the distance. And so what happens here? Does he push him underwater when he's like trying to get him to be quiet? Yeah, I think so, right? He's trying to keep him quiet and doesn't realize that he's got him submerged. Yeah, I was trying to figure out said, what happened there. He said he had a stitch, like a cramp, right? Oh, the kid said, I got a stitch. You're right. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. When the eel leaves, Horace is like, 
they'm gone, son. And then he turns around and he sees that Halam's dead, that he's drowned in the water. It's fucking intense. Okay, so was he holding him like unintentionally under the water or did the water just rise to his, you know? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I was trying to figure that out. It's It's not specifically laid out for you, but... Yeah, I think something about him trying to hide the kid plus him getting a stitch is probably combined. Yeah, he he couldn't keep his head above water and the dad didn't notice. He was too horrified. He's He was staring at the... Very, yeah. yeah. So then he obviously feels guilty and blames himself and is like, oh shit, I can't fucking believe I actually did this. This is fucked up. And then he goes... Oh, it's your fault, because I can't deal with this. Right. So I'm going to make it your fault. I can't handle it. And he calls her eel wife. Yeah. Yeah. Remember, at the beginning, Gray was like, why would he build a statue of his dead son? That's like a weird thing to do. But I think he was just had, you know, he's guilt ridden. So overcome. Right. Yeah. And this is where he says, I'll lay waste to Unland and all your kin. And so. See, I don't think he's guilt ridden. I think he doesn't blame himself at all. Mm. I think he does, and I think that's uh, see, why he's so on the offensive. No, I think he's straight up on the offensive because, like, they to him they were just out. Doing oh, he wouldn't fishing. have been in that situation. Yeah, and so like you know they weren't actively seeking that out. The kid went to the light, and he went to go find the kid, and then they were running away. Whether or not he did or did not kill the kid, I mean, I don't think he feels guilty. Right. I think he really, truly, just straight up blames everybody else. I think he feels guilty because. I think it's a one of those psychological deals where he just can't face it. Well, because to me, it just seems like he's just that kind of guy who doesn't have that self reflection. Oh yeah, right. unwilling to take responsibility. Yeah, yeah. I mean that that's definitely. Yeah. I think that definitely plays a huge part in that for sure. I will make dryland here, he says, and Edward Gray wakes up. He's in Ada's little hut there, and so he's immediately like, "Where are my clothes?" At once, you know. And she's like, they're by the fire. And then so there's this little funny moment where he's like, he's got to walk over there to get the to get the yeah. clothes. And she's like, I thought E were all in a rush. Ah, that's good. Yeah, good job there. <laughs> Suddenly, Walter Morse bursts in. He says the water's rising and he's like in this raincoat and he sees Gray there. And there's this funny moment because he's coming in and he sees Gray. He's naked in the bed with, and then his mom is there, right? <laughs> He's like, Uh, what were you guys doing? (laughs) Gray tells Walter that Lawless attacked him. He was transformed. He was blessed by the mirror, Walter says. Your fortunate mom found you. She knows the ways. Ada asks Walter about his sister. Don't you worry about Anna. She's high and dry on the tour, he says. And so Gray's like, oh, Anna's Walter's sister. Walter says he worked hard to get her away from Unland, but she took up with Edmund Poole. He says Anna is waiting for her moment. She wants it all back, even if we drown, especially if we all drown. Anna's going to break the pact and retrieve Mona, Walter says. Tell me everything, Gray responds. Oh, I love that. So awesome. Yeah, and the issue ends right there. So that's really great. It's good shit. All right, chapter five. Another amazing cover by Tedesco. I love Ed Gray with the knife and the eels behind him. Right. We open on Gray, Walter, and Ada, and they wade through the floodwaters. The whole town is getting totally flooded. Walter says, Horace brought this on them. Gray says, Anna can hardly be excused. And Walter says, Horace's vengeance on Unland twisted her. Sir Horace never forgot the night his son died. 
even as he made his fortune in Bristol and married a proper lady, he brooded on that loss and on what he'd seen in Unland. He studied the ways of the watermen, how to find fish, to know when rain was coming, but that was read in books, not felt in the bone. He'd seen the bright egg, though, and he knew it was Mona, the secret source. He sent men into Unland, men with money, men with guns. As we hear this, we see Sir Horace in the bed. He's still incapacitated. Anna comes up to relieve Miss Bream. She says she'll sit with him. And when she's gone, Anna starts to remove her gown and all those corsets and everything, right? Yeah, this is fucking... This is a sweet reveal. reveal. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, so we reveal she's got all these bracers all over her arms and her legs. And does she have one on her neck, too? Yeah, that's the neck corset I was talking about. Right. And... Because her arms are all wiggly, weird, eel arms. <laughs> She's got arms like cartoons back in like the 1930s yeah. and all that, the whole wavy right. arm kind of thing. Yeah, like no, no bones in her body, right? Right. Outside the window, we see two giant evil eels. I am the Mere Horace, daughter of the marsh. Mona speaks to me. Unland is rising, she tells Horace. And so she was the person in the eel costume, right? Oh, yeah. Back with Gray, Ada, and Walter, Ada tells him about the pact. Basically, as long as Horace lives and holds Mona, I assume they have control over all the water, right? Walter tells her it's as long as Poole lives, and Anna is now a pool. Gray asks if Edmund is safe, and suddenly they're attacked by this giant eel. It's like a skeleton eel. Yeah, and Ada yells to run out of the water. Skellington eel. And then it looks like it's got those electrical powers too, right? Because we see like lightning crackling around it while they fight it. And it's like trying to like headbutt them and bite them. Really cool action. I love the look of this eel. The giant eel says, The mirror has Mona. The waters return. Drylanders will drown. And then it gets hit by that club that we saw earlier. Bat club. Yeah. Ada yells at it in that frog, hyperborean language. And she pulls this giant knife from inside of her coat. Tight. And starts fucking fighting this thing, like almost cutting its head off and stuff. Find Anna, she yells. Walter hesitates because he doesn't want to leave his mom. But then he goes on. Mom will mince it. I pity the beast, he says. And in the background, she's like stabbing it in the eye and yeah, shit. That, that look on the eel's face when she like slices through its neck. It's right. all that eel's like, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> oh, and it says that IE again. <laughs> that kind of looks yeah. like Allie. Yeah. But I love this uh, reveal that Ada Morris is like this badass. Like, right. she knows all this shit about the eels. She knows all about Unland and she can totally fight. I would cast her as Jessica Walters. The mom from Arrested Development. Well, that's Lucille Bluth. And then also uh, Mallory Archer. Yeah. A lot of people know her as, but I I think she's fantastic. Yeah, she would be great. I love her. Gray and Walter walk through all the water. Some really great art here. I just love all this. Aren't these those little bastards that wanted, like the little girl who was all like wanting to go swimming? These little eel people. Yeah, these creepy fish children. Yeah. Yeah, They're like swimming through the water. They have those same black eyes that we saw this little kid. I would love if we saw like the little eel baby just like wiggling up like a a trout or whatever. And we also see the statue of Halam. It's got like little snails on it and stuff where the eyes were. There's one on the top too. Where? Where is this? I love them. As they approach the mansion, Gray tells Walter to obey his order regarding Anna. 
She's my sister, Walter says. She's partly responsible for several murders, Grace says. Those bees do what she tells them. But I'm more concerned about Mona, Grace says. I should seize that damned egg for the crown. Do that, and Britain will drown, Grey, Walter says. There's a chamber in the Tower of London where arcane objects of power are secured, Grace says. The queen has worse than Mona among her jewels. So I wonder what that, what is he alluding to there, right? Other like weird supernatural objects or whatever. I was just assuming he like, you know, kind of like that warehouse at the end of Indiana Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, you know, right. it's got all that fucking, you, you know, mystic artifacts just boxed away. Right. Like um, the Russian BPRD. Right. When they go in yeah. there and they've got all that warehouse of stuff. In the mansion, they're told that Sir Horace has just passed away. And Gray asks if he had marks or scorching on him. And they're brought to Edmund, and he's getting drunk on Pool's Elixir and Scotch. He says he's devised his own recipe. Nice. And they ask where Anna is. Anna dwells in the depths, Edmund says. The depths? Where? Focus man, Gray yells. I love that. (laughs) He's like all crazed or whatever. (laughs) So good. Who did we cast him as? We talked about Christian Bale Mm, for Edward Gray. I don't know if I agreed on that, though. I can't remember my cast pick. <laughs> I had a, I know I had a specific casting pick for this guy. Hey, damn guys, me, if you remember what I was saying. You can just go back to Lost I and Gone Forever though, and listen to the episode. But I will never you do that. Will. You will. Don't what? hey, damn geyser. This is... Po- <laughs> Everyone knows it is my personal fucking policy to absolutely <laughs> never listen to this This is podcast. how I'm going to get you to listen to I it. I never will. <laughs> I'm going to email you the link to our Lost and Gone I'm, Forever will, episode. It's policy It's a great episode. You'll this. love it. I never will. <laughs> yeah, I had somebody in mind one time. Oh, I like how do you say his name? Richard uh Armitage? Mm. Oh right. Oh, yeah. He would be great. Tell he me was who this um is. he was the he was the hot dwarf in Oh yeah. He was Thorn. the Thorn Oakenshield. Yeah, yeah he Not was bad. Thorn Oakenshield. You can say hot Hobbit. dwarf, it's fine. Yeah, yeah. He's also the voice of Wolverine in the new Wolverine podcast. Oh, yeah. Oh really yeah, he would be good. Yeah, he's great. You're absolutely right. He would be a good one. Edmund says, Anna's in the room below the cellar. And as they walk off, he says, she's been waiting for the rain for so long, she couldn't wait anymore. In the cellar, Gray tells Walter that Anna probably killed Horace, but Walter still defends her. She's not a witch, he says. Don't worry about me, brother. Mona protects her own, a voice says. And Gray calls out to her that Halam is drowning. People are losing life. Call halt or suffer when the tide goes out again, he says. They find this small door in the cellar. And Walter hesitates going in at first, but then he follows after Gray. And Gray says they should be able to pass if Anna did. Because they're going like in this little cave. It's getting smaller and smaller. Walter says she's Mona's keeper now. Rumors are it transforms you. When they get to the opening of the cave, they find Anna in there with Mona, the egg, and the two giant eels. She says Horace kept the cave dry all these years, but the eels haven't sealed the passage. Unland rises again. Tight. Edward takes out his knife, and Anna asks if it can cut water. Grace says it's to cut the eels. He almost sliced one's head off earlier. What then, Anna questions, you'll hang me and claim Mona for Queen and Empire? Mona is Unland. She and her people are one. She can't be removed until her time has come. 
and Walter tries to take the knife away from Gray. I assume to save his sister, but Gray just clocks him. And the eels kind of like start to approach. And on this bottom panel, we see this the top of this head poke through that looks like Ada coming coming to help. We last saw I her fighting that. that eel, so you know she must have yeah. gotten away. I love it too, Matt. It's a great scene. <laughs> As Gray has the eels distracted, Ada bursts out of the water. And while speaking the Hyperborean language, she shoves Anna away from Mona. And she puts her hands on it. Oh, and geez. so there's this spectacular panel in the middle of this page as she touches Mona. This huge release of energy is depicted. And it's like there's no color in the panel. It's, it's like the same color as the background. It is a warm it negative. tone, though. Yeah, yeah. it's like yeah. a negative. Yeah. yeah, that's a great way to describe it. It's so great looking. It really stands out in the story. Look how Gray starts yelling stuff again, right? When when he confronts the oh, yeah, for yeah, God yeah. hath girded me with strength unto the battle. Like, it's, who yells that kind of stuff when they're getting ready to fight? It's so cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that scene where um, where she pushes Anna off the rock with her flappy arms. Oh, it just, yeah. It just looks so <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> good. It's like, yeah. no, this it's page very, does yeah, a lot good. of work. <laughs> Ada says she will be Mona's companion. No one knows Unlin better than her. She tells Anna that she'll be free. Live your life, Anna. Walker, get her out of here now, Ada yells. As Walker takes her out, Ada says, and be kind to each other. Typical mom. Dig right? <laughs> Ada addresses Edward Gray as these giant eels bash the walls of the cave. There's a new pact, Witchfinder. Tell your queen, leave Unlin be, and the rains will hold back. Mona will tend her realm. Keep the pact. Else the waters rise over all England. And so these eels are like smashing into the wall and breaking everything. Edward Gray says, I'll relay your message. And then the cave like collapses. But she's still alive in there. It's intense. Right? I'm assuming that like, you know, they they were just sealing it off. Right. Gray tells Anna, you best honor your mother's sacrifice. And she says, and you better respect Mona's will. All you drylanders. We cut to the train station, and now Gray is leaving, and he addresses Walter, Anna, and Edmund. I shall report that unknown malefactors were under the influence of the artifact. I advise you from refraining from murdering anyone in the future. I shall strive to keep that resolution, Anna says. <laughs> so that I- sign? <laughs> oh, and the yeah, thank you for pointing out the sign. So it says, floods recede, pools pay for cleanup. And then the newspaper at the bottom, too. <laughs> Edmund's like, so after all, what are the elixir's chances for the royal warrant? And he goes, rather low. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and so uh, yeah. I like he how Anna that. actually waves at him. She actually waves at him as he's leaving. And yeah, we so see. Are they, are they showing us there that she's kind of back to normal? Right. I think so. And then, yeah, we do see the paper there. It says, rain cease, leaving Halam to count the cost. Thousands mourn Horace Pool, marshes to remain. Or, you know, maybe maybe she's just got the braces back on. Oh, right, right. Mm. That could be. Could be a little both. When Gray gets in the car, he's greeted by Mr. Silk and Ms. Goad. No need to hurry, Silk says. You can report after luncheon, Sir Edward. What's on the menu, Edward asks. Jellied eels, Ms. Goad says. I'll have the salad, Gray says. <laughs> 
so then we cut to November 2006. So now we're like way in the future. 125 years? Is that oh, right? Oh, okay. Thank you for that, Matt. We see this uh, trench-coated figure arriving at the same through the same train at the same train station. I like the bills here. The flyers. Oh, yeah. So yeah. we see him looking at all these flyers. It says, Professor Jeremy Tozer canceled. They, someone wrote Tosser. <laughs> Tosser, <laughs> yeah. In there and said, yeah, that it's been canceled because it's he's supposed to be giving some fucking speech about the myth of global warming. And so the fucking kids are all right and got that shit canceled. And it says sponsored by Zinko. Yeah, sponsored by Zinko. And it says bad sign. Yeah, and it says Silver Eel Hall. Yeah. So everything is still eel based. And there's a band called Fish Face. They're playing Saturday at nine. (laughs) Don't tell your mom. Right. And And there's a lost cat. Be on the lookout for that too. And it also says by royal appointment pool. Right. So I wonder if they ever got the the. Does that try to? Is that saying that they got the? They got the approval. I, well, if you go to the next page, I think that pool has evolved. The elixir is now pool's pop. Yeah. Right. So we see the store says pool's pop and it says underneath a subsidiary of Zinco. And Zinco toxic management warning. Do not drink or swim in the water. Right. They fuck this shit yeah. right up. This is like Zinco has taken over this town now. Right. Did you notice that the sign on the pool's pop says? Yeah, Abletums. Yeah. That was that family. Yeah. yeah. I still read it as Abel Adams as well. So. And then and then we also see the statue of Halan, but it's like missing its head. Right. And this this lady, the pact is broken. The waters are rising, Drylander. I'm and then, no Drylander. Yeah, and we oh, reveal that it's Abe. Yeah. Oh, and he calls her Mare, too. And so is that Ada? I was assuming so. Right, because she's Mare now, that she's got Mona. And so I, he knows about all this, this right? The shot of Abe is so fucking great. I love this how old? How old would she be, though? Well, you just said, I mean, 125 years later. So if she was already in her, I don't know, let's say 60s or 70s, then just she's 200 rich. years old. Yeah. I mean, she's Mary. Yeah, she's the sea witch. Or she whatever. might even be older. It could be a Wolverine thing. Right, right. Well, I mean, Crazy. we saw her like, I guess, looking like you know, twenties, thirties, in the in the eighteen forties. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. right, right. And so, you know, Matt and I, we were actually texting earlier. We're trying to figure out where this takes place because this says November two thousand six, and um, Garden of Souls where Abe went to Indonesia, mm-hmm. and he found Panya and all that stuff. That was in March of 2006. So this was after that. But when he came back from that, he had like a broken arm and shit. And yeah. here it doesn't look like he has one. Or maybe he might have one under the trench coat. But it Well, no, he's clearly using two arms right here when he's right. in the train. So like, it has to be far enough after that but then the next thing is killing ground so i was trying to figure out does this take place after killing ground or before and then so matt you know with his connections you want to talk a little bit about this matt yeah so i just just like texted scott and was like (laughs) hey man when does this take place exactly and he said he was like i I don't remember what was in my head at the time right Um, yeah and i said let's just say it was uh a trip he took over Thanksgiving break. Right, yeah. Right? <laughs> nice. And he, he said, okay, I like that. Yeah, awesome. That's good awesome. Shit. Well, you know, it's like same energy when he says, I'm no Drylander. I, I 
for whatever fucking reason I that part in Lord of the Rings where she's like, I'm no man. Oh yeah. yeah that's a good <laughs> yeah, and it's this good was, to it's good to no see it, it's good to see old school Abe too. It's great. Yeah. You know, he's still uh he's still in his pre evolved form. When this came out, I was shocked to see that. It's right. good. Yeah. It's real good. I like yeah, it. Yeah, I think a lot of readers were yeah. very surprised by that. I mean, because this series, so this is 2014, right? So this is coming out like around the time of Ape Sapien 14, 15. Right. Those issues, right? And it, Yeah, and you're was... getting all this cool, like, yeah. modern Abe. So to go back a little is just... And it's like what we were saying last week. You keep seeing Abe talking about his past and all this, and here's something we didn't even know about. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like you were saying earlier how this would make such a good TV show for these specific reasons is you could throw shit like this yeah. in there and just have oh, a right. sapien yeah. appearance and be like, oh. And so I also want to say the aesthetic here that he's got the trench coat and the hat and the, yeah. it's very noir Abe. I dig it. In the sketchbook section on the trade paperback, um, like Aubrey said, they talk about how Tyler Crook experimented with blue washes, but it didn't make the process any easier. We also see Tyler Crook sketches for all the characters in the story, and he draw he has to draw them at all different That's ages really good, too. Yeah. yeah, so he's got like version one of Ada and version two of Ada. We see him designing the stone statue of Halam. That statue looks like something you'd put on your desk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, it's mostly all his different character designs. He's so expressive with their faces. It's really cool to see all the process that he went through. And, you know, he really took his time to design all the different faces of, you know, the different ladies that are in the story. Uh, Miss Bream, Miss Gold, and Miss Butler. Yeah. Put a little work into this. We also see his designs on all the eel monsters. We all loved the well-dressed eel on the right. <laughs> just not for this story. Uh, and they have this eel. And then there's this one. It says, maybe creepy little hands. Nice. This one's got those little hands on it. It's really cool looking. The, the well-dressed eel kind of reminds me of one of the characters in the Disney movie Lilo and Stitch. Mm. Oh, okay. One yeah, of the aliens, yeah. 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 This reminds me of when uh, Mike Mignola draws those uh, skeletons with little suits on and wine glasses. Right, and stuff. It's very yeah. Proper. I dig that. We also see Tedesco's pencils for the issue one cover, which are really amazing to look at. Yeah. More designs by Tyler Crook for the mirror, that eel costume, and then more roughs of Tedesco's cover process. We also see the Mona egg, and it's got different versions of it as well. After the eels, this was the second hardest design to nail down. Tyler provided diverse options. And so we see a lot of different designs on the Mona egg. And then one little detail I noticed on the back of the trade paperback cover, it's got the Dark Horse logo on one side, and on the other side it has the wallpaper from the, oh, from yeah. the Glass Eel Hotel in the little corner, which I thought was a nice little touch. Yeah, great story. I love coming back to these Witchfinder stories. It was so good to see Tyler Crook's art again. So we'll be back cool. with Abe and following up with the BPRD crew and Hell on Earth on our next episode. Did you guys have anything else to say about Unlin? Were you going to say anything else? It's dope. No, just that it was great to read it again. Like I said, I've read this over and over and over. Yeah. Can't get enough of this particular series. I don't know why. I think because it so much time had passed between Witchfinder series that I was, you know, right, really excited to have some new stuff. 
but it was a great vibe. It, yeah. Like we said earlier, Manola doesn't even have his name on it. Right. Yeah. You know, they just turned it over to somebody that he really admired and that he knew could handle it. And they just hit it out of the park. Oh, yeah. So. I'm glad you mentioned that. Let's come back to talk about Newman and McHugh a little bit. I really loved how they... All the sayings. Yeah. They, re- they really are aware of how people talked. Yeah. And the kind of things that people would say. And I just really thought that that was a nice touch. It really, like, put me in the universe. Yeah. All those little things. And, like, the little girl, the way that she yeah. talked yeah. and stuff like that. Well, just really just, nice touches. Yeah. It just to be its own thing. Of course, you've got amazing artists and colorists and writers. Everybody that's working on it is super great. And that all comes together to make something awesome but it's got for me it's got all these elements of different things that i really enjoy that come together to make something totally unique and i'm not saying that it's borrowing from these things just that it reminds me of for example like um you've got a little sherlock holmes in there you've got a little bit of Buffy. you've got a little bit of constantine you've got a little bit of all the things you like yeah and it's it's not not that that's on purpose or anything but it's it's a little bit of X Files. It's a little bit of this. It's a little bit of that, and I I enjoy it for all those reasons. I enjoy it because it's yeah. so weird and unique. It's not like <laughs> anything else that's out there. It's kind of a noir horror detective. What the fuck is it? Right, I like it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Who thought yeah, that? It's, uh, it's Witchfinder. That's what it's it is. Witchfinder. Yeah. Witchfinder. Witchfinder. Who thought that this? Uh, stuffy englishman would be such a great character right he's so, he's <laughs> so uh... all right and so next week we'll be back with abe sapien and the bprd hell on earth and i'm really excited to get back and see what they're doing so now aubrey's gonna say all the things all right everybody share us your thoughts on Witchfinder, the mystery of unlin send us a hey you damn guys at hellboybookclub at gmail.com Follow us on Facebook at Hellboy Book Club Podcast and on Instagram and Twitter at Hellboy Book Club. And you can also find the Discord and reading list on our Facebook About section. I also want to give a special thanks to Paul from Garterharn for the amazing and beautiful yeah. music. We love you, Paul. Thank yeah. you. Thanks uh, to Mark Tudal for helping John out with the reading order. We love you, Mark. And uh, thank you to John for fucking all the editing all the and directing and so uh, all the hard ass work and Just research he does. Well, we love him. <laughs> you can find the podcast on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts from. Next week, we are going to be discussing Abe Sapien, Dark and Terrible, The Shadow of Swanee, and the BPRD, Hell on Earth, The Devil's Wings. Yeah. So you know what yeah. to do. Pull out those back shoes. It looks like you're going to need two different trades this week. So uh, grab them both and make yourself a pizza. And it, wash your hands before you read comics, though. Seriously. forget. Matter of fact, forget the pizza. Well, no, don't forget it. And uh, join us next week on the Hellboy Book Club podcast. Thanks a lot for listening, everybody. I'm John Salinas. And I'm Danielle. And I'm Matt Strackbine. And I'm Aubrey Lovelace saying... That's a black mark for double negative, Constable. (laughs) I want to touch their bones.